Welcome back, everybody. On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Uriel Eisen of Austere Manufacturing in Seattle, Washington. On each episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I try to get a guest from, you know, like a frame builder typically from the bike industry, and I try to have them tell their story with frame building and the work that they do. And this week, my guest isn't exactly a frame builder, uh, although uh, Uriel has done, uh, has made two frames, sort of. Uh, We talk mainly about the manufacturing business where he's making um, buckles. So these are used for bike packing and for, you know, bag makers, and they are quite exquisite. And if you don't already follow austere manufacturing on Instagram and anywhere else online, you should, uh, they're just really, really nice. And, uh, even, even like a top tier, exceptionally well-produced, uh, you know, buckle and strap like that is quite affordable. And so I, I recommend everybody go pick one up because they're just gorgeous. But but anyway, we talk for the last year or so, uh, we've been buddies and we talk about manufacturing and lean manufacturing and business and somewhat about the bike industry. And so thought he'd be a good guest to have on this podcast, even though we don't talk exactly about frame building that much. I think the discussion might be relevant, especially to those people who are running more of a business and who think about things like inventory and shop process and improvement. So I hope you enjoy the interview and I'm just going to roll it. In terms of my interest in bikes, I would say, so um, in high school, my dad and my brother did a lot of biking and they're like, Oh, do you want to like get a bike for your birthday? And I was like, why would I want a new bike? Like I have a bike and I don't actually like bike riding. Um, I just kind of use it to go to friends houses and stuff like that. Um, and then through college in college, I guess like I started commuting by bike and then it's like, you know, that slippery slope of like, oh, it would be nice to not get wet when it's raining. So then you had fenders. And then it's like, I wonder how people carry stuff without just a big backpack while biking. And I got panniers. Well, I actually made panniers. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another. And then I bought like three bikes toward the end of college, um, like a fat bike, a gravel bike, and a mountain bike. Um, and yeah, and just got like super into biking. Um yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't own a car for a long time and kind of, I, I think like like a lot of people who get way into biking, like see cars as like the destroyers of cities um, mm-hmm. in a way that's sort of hard to come back from. Um, now I do own a car, unfortunately, but yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just kind of hard to, hard to live. It is hard um, to live. Things are currently designed without a car. Yeah, so, in, in America, but, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that that's kind of, uh, I guess like in college, that's kind of when things started for me bike wise. Um, and then, yeah, made a bunch of, I guess it was junior year, did my first bikepacking trip and decided it would be a good idea to like make all the bikepacking gear for the trip. Um, I'd gotten into sewing probably a year before that, um, making bags and stuff. So I thought it'd be fun to try making bikepacking bags. Um, I think like at the time bikepacking was pretty 
nascent. I mean, uh, uh, Surly had just launched the ECR, and that's actually what my partner got um, for this trip. So she bought that bike. I bought a uh, Pugsley, and a friend of ours was, I think, also on an ECR. And we like showed all the bags and then went down to the um, Georgia bike trip. We weren't the race. We just, like went down to the TNGA. Um, and, yeah, we went and biked a bunch of it. Um, my brother, when he was watching us make the gear, he was like, I think what's going to happen is you're going to go down and just spend the whole time like fixing broken stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, the first like five minutes, I was worried he'd be exactly right because we like rolled down the first hill and it really like it was a, a mild slope. And then it went through like a very subtle drainage ditch. And my uh, seat post bag broke. <laughs> like one of the buckles just broke. Uh, and, and so luckily I'd brought spare buckles. So I like um, replaced the buckle. And then I was like, wow, I, <laughs> he might be right. Because I was like five minutes into the ride. Um, but yeah, so we finished the trip. We ended up re- uh, replacing, I think, all those buckles on all three of our bags. Like it broke in the same way. Uh, but besides that, like the trip was a ton of fun and um, the bags worked. So, um, yeah, so th- th- that was kind of, I think from there, I mean, I, I guess like that was, uh, the, the interest in soft goods, the interest in biking. And from then I, I've kind of been making a lot of bike bags and doing a lot of bike in Ecuador, um, all over the U S. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> uh yeah no I, I think that's an interesting backstory if nothing else but it's cool to see you know where people lead into their you know all the people that I interview on this show who make something or another related to bikes it's usually bike frames but it doesn't end there a lot of my guests have you know dabbled in components or soft goods or or they you know all sorts of things and uh but it's cool like something that you know is interesting about what you do is you make the the cam buckles now that sort of solve an issue and um because the ones that you had used for this trip and maybe they were not the best you could buy but they were failing right so like what's interesting about that is nowadays people who are inspired to become frame builders typically they're not making frames that are actually stronger than what you can buy mass produced you know like a surly or Mm -hmm. something maybe you could make it stronger and maybe you could make it stronger and lighter, but that's not really like the nominal issue with production bikes. Isn't that they're like of poor quality, like it can happen, but it's not, it's not like a, like a massive issue or something that we're solving. Frame building typically is more of like an artistic expressional thing, or it's more of a, um, it's a, it's a service that we provide to customers to give them something that's hand tailored or that's exclusive or that's a higher fashion or, or it's those other things. It's not technically stronger or higher performance typically. And so what's interesting about the cam buckles for bikepacking is that the ones that you make are actually really high performance. Like they're not just, you know, boutique-y, they're actually like significantly and materially better. Uh, That's definitely the goal. Yeah. I mean, so basically the backstory with the the hardware specifically um, is, as I mentioned, like, I, I had been frustrated with the buckles you buy for uh, a bunch of years at that point. Um, 
basically it's kind of crazy but like the the hardware you have on say you buy like a dyneema bag dyneema is like maybe the the nicest most expensive fabric at the moment for like the outdoor industry um dyneema fiber by weight i think is like seven times stronger than steel anyway it's a crazy material like floats on water um it's very cool but so you buy this like really nice bag made of this crazy like new age fabric um, and, and the bag is literally held together with, uh, like plastic buckles that you, you'd find on like a, you know, normal Jan sport from like target. And I think for the most part, like a lot of those buckles, um, you know, it makes sense for a lot of applications, the injection molded plastic. Um, I, I think like the cost is super low, which is nice for some applications, but yeah, there are some, there are, it's kind of weird. Like there are as far as I can tell, no producers of hardware that is both light and strong. And so that's sort of the niche um, that this fills. So you can, you can find like really cool hardware for like skydiving or, or like, you know, fall protection, but it's sort of optimized for, um, you know, making sure that you don't uh, go splat on the ground. Um, and the result is it's very heavy. And so you don't really want to use it for like, uh, human powered adventures. Like even there are some bags that you end up using, like there's a company that makes these CNC milled, like very cool kind of uh, buckles, but they're designed for like fall protection. And so they're just way too heavy. So you make a bag with a few of those and the weight just doesn't really make sense, even though they feel nice and they look nice. Anyway, so there's sort of this like uh, dearth of high performance hardware that is still lightweight. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of struggled like finding the right piece of buck, the right piece of hardware. And um, I did a lot of soft goods for other companies. And, and every time I kind of designed a new product, I'd often like, you know, in the ideal world, what I use application. And realistically, you end up just settling something you can find in the catalog. Um, and then I, I, I took a job uh, prototyping spacesuits for NASA and in that application, this may not be surprising, um, a lot of the hardware is custom made, right? Like you're going to the moon or whatever. Um, so sensitivity, sensitivity is very high, but you also don't want a failure. Um, and, and so it was all or mostly a custom hardware and kind of seeing that and all these sketches I had made over the years, I was kind of like, okay, well, like maybe, um, like maybe there's a there's a place for just nicer hardware for like us earth dwellers um mm-hmm. that was, that was kind of the moment that that like catalyzed the the idea of of cnc in these buckles um yeah I, I you know i had had enough failures of the plastic buckles and just was kind of frustrated both with the the performance but also like just the perception of quality. I mean, like the custom bike world, I feel like you are sort of like you might kind of mentioned, right? Like you're walking this line of, yeah, maybe you are giving someone a uh, better performance for like the exact niche they're looking for um, or like their exact body geometry or, you know, measurements. Um, but you're also kind of offering this like really elevated experience of cycling ideally. Um, and I think there's something you know, besides, so I think there are some purchasers of our buckles who are just looking for like, I need something that's not going to break. It's not going to slip. And like the buckles do that, but there's also just like, if you're going to 
own an object and interact with it on a daily basis, I think the the experience of handling like the feel and the finish on like a plastic buckle, it just doesn't feel as high quality as maybe the rest of the bag you own, which, you know, there's all these uh, custom bag makers now too, you know, to go along with the custom frames. Um, and, and I think, yeah, so it's sort of both those worlds. It sort of bridges the gap. Um, ideally it feels really good. It looks really good. It's nice to use. It's like a, a, an object you enjoy interacting with, but then also it just performs a lot better. Um, anyway, so that, that was kind of the, the inspiration behind it. Yeah. I love the part of your story where you literally worked on spacesuits for NASA. That's like, um, of all the people that I know who have machine shops who do some SpaceX and NASA parts and whatever satellite parts, a lot of yeah. times it's like you look at it and well, I, I haven't seen that many of these parts to be honest, because the people who I know who make them usually they can't share that stuff or, or I don't see <laughs> right. it that much, but, but anyway, um, you know, it's just some little bracket or something. It's not like, I feel like the space suit is one of the most iconic and visible things you think about, like, you know, those little like uh, cuffs where you, I don't know, the gloves come on and off. And like, you just imagine like yeah. all the fittings. It's like, uh, it's just, it's symbolic. It's, it's cause it's, it's the human form in space. And so like, of course, <laughs> machinery on earth and machinery in space would look a little bit different, but like the human form on earth and the human form in space is really, it's a transformed figure and so anyway it's just cool that like you got to have that experience and i feel like part of what nasa symbolizes is this kind of the dream of the person who makes things and wants to do a good job for the satisfaction of it is that you know we don't care that much about the budget we we care about getting it right we right. can't afford to fail if we need to use exotic materials we'll use them if we need to put a bunch of time into the design or make it the hard way to get the result you know, we'll do that. And so that really scratches the itch of the, of the maker who, who wants to make something cool and wants to, you know, work hard to make the best thing. And so it's yeah, know, for sure. a really I, cool project. I, I mean, it, it was actually like one of the, one of my favorite jobs that I had, just like the culture of the company I was at. Um, it's kind of crazy. Like you'd show up in the morning and then there would be sort of this like dead silence till lunch because everyone was just like so engrossed in what they were doing which I feel like is just super rare. I don't know. I haven't been in that many workplaces where everyone's like so engaged that it's just like quiet. And it was really um, interesting. And just from a technical perspective, um, like the spacesuits have so many constraints on them in terms of weight, in terms of reliability, in terms of like the testing they have to go through. And, um, and of course, fart ventilation. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a critical <laughs> factor. Yeah. <laughs> you know. People, people have spent their careers on that, but um, it, it was it was really interesting. Uh, yeah, so very very uh, cool team to work on. It was really an awesome project from a lot of perspectives. The hardware was just one element of that. Um, in terms of the uncompromising kind of approach and like um, the problem solving, it it is really interesting. Like I think some markets the incumbent players in that market kind of end up in a situation where there's a lot of price sensitivity and so they keep re-engineering products that kind of check all these boxes in terms of function but also they know kind of where the price point needs to come in 
And every now and then you see a market where that's been the case for a lot of the years. And then someone comes along and just says, okay, but what if you just wanted the best version of this you could possibly make? What would that look like? And then they launch a thing and it's like quite a bit more expensive. And everyone's kind of like, wow, that's a lot for this object. But then it kind of catches on. And like one of the early examples that I was sort of like just very conscious of, I'm sure there's many throughout history, but was like Hydroflask, I feel like sort of like redefined what people would pay for a thermos, but also simultaneously, it was just like a re- an object like that you actually kind of wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like before that, thermoses were just like, okay, if you want a hot or a cold beverage, like this is the tool. And it wasn't like, you didn't like desire to own a thermos, I feel like. And then they came along and were like, okay, what if we just made it as nice as possible and then we charge what we need to charge for that? Uh, to to work out. And um, that was kind of like my approach. Um, all these plastic buckles are really just optimized for cost and they do a good job of it. I mean, you know, people are paying like uh, in production, they're paying like 15 to 35 cents a buckle, um, which is great. I mean, you know, I can't touch that cost for sure or that price, but if you want something better, like no one just, no one just went after the market as like, okay, what would be the best thing you could have for this application? And I don't know. I I feel like every industry kind of needs someone doing that of like, if you don't want to compromise and I actually don't care that much about price. I mean, obviously to a point you do. Right. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what does that look like? And and I, I think it's a much more, it's a pretty interesting place to exist. You know, that being said, like we have spent a ton of time trying to get our production uh, optimized uh, to to keep the price down. I mean, some people might look at the website and say, are you keeping the price down? But like, we are putting a lot of effort into producing these things um, cheaply. It's funny, like people who run CNC shops look at that thing and go like, how are you like, it's kind of inexpensive for what it is. Um, a CNC, as, from a CNC perspective. And I think, um, I don't know, uh, people who haven't machined stuff sometimes think it's kind of like quite expensive. But Exactly. I, you get that both ways all the time because some folks, they work in the CNC environment and they are used to doing like complex prototyping. So they wouldn't even think of touching a job with a single piece of material that was going to make them less than you know, 500 or a thousand dollars just because everything they do is, is requires special tooling, lots of programming, you know, maybe you scrap a couple pieces just to get the part right and tough tolerances and whatever. And then there's other people who, who do the crazy production numbers. They're doing, you know, a hundred thousand units of something and they optimize every component of it. And they, they, every little part of it is optimized and they figure out how to make them dirt cheap and then, you know, they look at you funny for charging so much for stuff. And so <laughs> it's such a wild landscape because CNC machinery yeah, that's true. is really, it's very, very good at scale. But it's also, CNC is relatively good at small scale, you know, whereas like casting and, uh, you know, forging right. and a lot, you know, a lot of other, um, a lot of other scalable industry is not as dynamic as CNC. So it kind of kind of snakes its way in the middle there and you have... You have people on either side of you. And for listeners, uh, the typical, what's the price typically on your stuff these days? Um, for a strap, you know, piece of webbing sewn to one of the buckles, um, right around 25, depending on the length, 25 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a really, I mean, as someone who owns and runs a CNC shop, 
and and you know like selling your own product so like when the customer buys that they're paying for all of the marketing and process development and like uh, product development and, and engineering and you know if you were ever to do promotional things like go to a trade show or all that stuff that you have to cover yourself and the cost of the machine that really only yeah. really only is paid off by this one product line essentially um you know so like that's Definitely. really it's really a pretty and, and it comes it's it's uh, you have Cerakote on there and there's a custom titanium spring and titanium pin and the two pieces and then the webbing is sewn on and you guys do a good job with the the webbing and all that stuff so i mean i think it's it, you're getting a lot for that price but yeah when you think about it just in terms of how affordable this sort of class of thing you know like little straps and things are uh yeah it can be hard yeah. for the average person to understand why it's so expensive yeah, so it's funny. I mean, um, small correction: it's a stainless steel spring and a titanium pin. But uh, okay, yes. the the uh, yeah, I, I think. The, so the funny thing, I have a funny story. Um, a friend of ours who does a lot of camping. Um, at the beginning, I was kind of like, "Hey, like, what do you think of this product?" And he's like, "Well, it seems cool. Like, what what do you charge?" And I was like, "You know, around twenty five bucks." He's like, "I like that's ridiculous. Like, I don't need." I can just buy a way cheaper strap. And recently, um, so his partner actually bought some of them and ended up um, using them and loving them. And like, I've seen sales to the city where they live. And I think a lot of them are due to her kind of like, you know, <laughs> preaching, uh, yeah. <laughs> spreading the, the good word. Um, but anyway, recently I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, I mean, they're great. Like, I just think like people don't realize how good a strap can be. I'm like, really, it's not that much money. And I started, you know, I started laughing. He didn't remember the previous conversation That's we had funny. had about it. Um, but I think like, once you get your hands on it, it, it does perform just like differently enough, I think, that it suddenly makes a lot of things possible that really didn't work before. I mean, this may seem like trivial and small, but when you put so a ladder lock is like the, the piece of hardware that you'd find at like the the end of your backpack strap like your shoulder strap to mm -hmm. adjust the length of the shoulder strap yep. um so those ladder locks are used in most bikepacking stuff and they two things about them like they rely on constant tension to to maintain position so as they go through jostling the the webbing kind of slowly works its way through so that's one issue with them the other issue is they rely on they assume a sort of linear um, loading. So like the buckle is kind of in line with the webbing and that's great for some applications, but often like if you try to put one of those buckles around like a Nalgene or around a smallish dry bag where the radius starts to um, get a little too um, substantial, like for, far away from linear, they, they don't develop any friction. And so they really don't hold at all. And, like with this thing, you just kind of like pull it tight and it just stays there. Mm -hmm. And when you use it, like, so I spent like six months developing this thing. And the first bikepacking trip where I used it, um, like, you know, I had, I had thought that it would be kind of the, the solution to the problem enough to spend six months of my life, uh, working on it. And even so, like the first time I used this, it, it was, it was interesting to see just how, um, different the experience was of using it where you're just like not worried about pulling too hard on it. You're not worried about it loosening while you're riding. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, uh, yeah. So I don't know. Well, and it's wild to think about 
Yeah, like a little strap like that is because I mean you would always see in bike shops and stuff like on a I I always noticed on bike in bike shops on the repair stand there would be you know like before clipless pedals there's the toe clips and straps those yep. little, those little straps are a similar sort of thing that are just generally useful for a lot of random things and um, totally but you'd see those I always see those looped on a repair stand in a bike shop and then it's just right there when you need like a a third hand essentially to like hold something temporarily uh, all sorts of right. stuff and not just for bike repairs but of course you know the bike mechanic just has those around and they end up doing that um but anyway yeah and i found that i use your because i have four of yours or i've given a couple away now I probably, I probably have two but i i just use them in the shop for all sorts of stuff like i was thinking about how i was going to modify my pickup truck to more easily move welding cylinders like the cylinder gas uh-huh. bottles around which is right. a silly problem but like if you have a pickup truck that is not a very good way to transport these bottles. So they just, they just roll and crash around. You need a way to secure them. And the manufacturers of said vehicles have no interest in providing you with like holds and stuff. So I want to build in some right. custom stuff. And I, I'm just going to use your straps because they're like a really good way to do that. There's just like a lot of, just a lot of applications where like being able to cinch something down and, and I selfishly, I would like to see you just, you know, really expand your product line a lot of ways. Cause like, Whenever Me too. <laughs> I always end up using ratchet straps for all sorts of crap, and I freaking hate them. They're just so tedious. Yeah, like you can't complain for what they're capable of in the price, but like you're just always feeding the strap in, and then like the you're trying to set it up, and the hooks just release off of things, and it's it just drives <laughs> me nuts. Yeah, so that's definitely um, on the list. Uh, a lot of uh, new products on the list, but. Um... I guess the, the the buckles, I kind of thought we'd release this product and it would be way too niche and a few people would buy them, but mostly it would just be because I wanted them to exist for my own bike packing. Um, yeah. But the demand has been such that um, I guess we've, at this point, we've launched like a little over a year and a half ago and uh, basically just spend that time on like process optimization and yeah, just like really being able to grow the throughput of the uh, shop. And so really haven't gotten around. I mean, I've been developing stuff, you know, kind of behind the scenes and I have a few buckles that are kind of close, but just not quite. um, Yeah. You know, they're going to take a little tweaking um, just to get them to that level of refinement um, that I'd like to see. But yeah, just kind of keeping up with demand. um, Hopefully, um, going to grow the team a little bit here and uh be able to release some new products so we'll see yeah yeah i would love to see more of that stuff it's it's really hard to find the time to develop the products and the time it really is to i have to say like (laughs) yeah well just you know like you you i mean we'll talk about this some i'm sure but the process refinement is like can feel hard to fit in and it's it's hard to do because it's it's a competing project that you're running at the same time as you're trying to develop new products as you're trying to market what you already have as you're trying to yeah be the labor in your business (laughs) Uh, right it's really hard to make time like you know you can pick and choose but everything comes at the cost of everything else so like there's no easy choice yeah it's interesting trying to balance it all i mean um, and I think there's sort of like a battle between 
kind of like this idealistic, like, I know this could be so much better, but then you're kind of like, yes, but I also need to ship stuff. Mm-hmm. And also how many of these am I actually producing versus how much time is that going to take? And yeah, it's a, it's a funny line to walk. Um, we've kind of set aside like 30 minutes, depending on the time we've kind of adjusted it, um, like 30 minutes to an hour a day on improvements around the shop. And I think it does a few things like, um, firstly, I like, I think it's always hard to set that time aside and take that time. Cause it always feels like you're behind and just got to get in there and produce stuff. Um, but I think what ends up happening is you end up like kicking down, kicking these projects down the road and like these little inconveniences and these little frustrations that don't feel substantial enough to like take an hour of time to actually just solve. But then once you do, you kind of never look back. Mm -hmm. Um, and just looking around at like the research in the market, um, companies that have a, like a systemized way of making uh, of continuous improvement tend to be like around 15% more profitable. And that's specific to machine shops in other industries that that multiples different, but I think it just indicates that like uh, dedicating, like setting aside time for improvement to your business processes, um, it, it will like, it does pay off. And I think there's ways of making it not pay off. Like I think you can sink too much time into R and D to solve problems that don't actually flow value to your customer, right? It's just like solving this, like, I don't know, like some sort of nerdy um, uh, desire to like see like a perfect process when really you're not actually solving anything for the customer. Like you're not necessarily reducing a ton of waste um, but it, and it will take a lot of time and maybe it's technically demanding. So I think picking like what you're improving is important, but just generally, I think it, like I found it very sort of um, like inspiring, but also like sort of empowering and enabling to to actually like take that time. Because I know uh, like a few years ago, I think I was kind of of the opinion that that like personally, I had this desire to optimize processes, but sometimes that just didn't make a lot of sense. And I think after like reading a lot of uh, books on lean manufacturing and just like uh, looking at research out there on the impact of lean or the impact of whatever other improvement process you want to use, um, it's just it's interesting to see like just how positive the results are. And and I, and I think that does two things. A, hopefully it increases my uh, profitability, right? And mm-hmm. uh, um, and the satisfaction of customers. But I think beyond that, like it can be a bit of a grind to, to start and run a small business where you're just like getting in there every day and just like trying to bang out as much work as you can. And like, it's a good problem to have to be underwater with orders, but simultaneously, like you don't want to disappoint your customers with like crazy lead times. Um, and and I think it can just like, I, I think a lot of people who get into, frame building or whatever other trade like machining. I think a lot of people get into it because they enjoy solving problems, right? Like I don't, I think that's sort of an entry point for like looking at a, at at some product offering and going like, man, I wish there was something that did something like slightly different, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not quite scratching that itch. And I think like a lot of people get into it for that reason, because that's like the type of person they are where they're looking at the world and going, 
you know, for better, or for worse, or also like sometimes you're wrong in, in your hypothesis and your hypothesis. But like, um, I, I think then like sometimes you kick off a product and then it's like kind of a grind and, and kind of demoralizing or can get there. And I, I think beyond just the process improvements, I think there's something to be said for just morale of knowing that you sort of are giving yourself that time to work on the things that bother you and like to just make everything a little better and to go in and solve a problem that like, I don't know if you zoom all the way out, is that your like top priority? Probably not. Like, you know, maybe you need to be doing more sales or developing a new product or like, uh, get your books in order. Like there's always so much stuff to, mm-hmm. to be done. That's sort of like working in the business. And then like, I don't know, it's hard to like give yourself permission and time to work on the business. It's, but yeah, it's hard yeah. because I think, um, you know, like the kind of person that it takes to start a business that would ultimately be successful, someone who actually has entrepreneurial vision and who is like incisive or I guess insightful enough to like see what the market wants and needs and would pay for. And just like figuring out how to actually be valuable to people. Like, you know, like you can't, it's just like, regardless of the attitudes you hold about the marketplace or capitalism at large, like, like the way, the only way that your business can actually really work is if you find a way to be valuable to people that functions, right? Like hundred percent. And yep. so, so anyway, I feel like, um, yeah, the, the problem that I found with some of the more idealistic things that I've wanted to do about, you know, in, increasing, like improving my process and stuff is just sometimes it's just a matter of cash flow where it's like there's a certain amount of expense involved in a time frame like like a month for instance yep and and i know that like the thing that i've monetized the most is like the more conservative approach of just like make and ship and sell the thing that i have and invest only as much effort is required to do that minimum Anyway, and it's like I can't I can't like pull more sales out of thin air. It's kind of like a miracle that I have enough sales to do the thing. <laughs> so you can get feeling like and and that you don't have enough cash flow yet beyond that to just hire, you know, all the labor you would need to to you know, get all that work done so that you, you as that vision holding person that you can create the vision for your business and you can continue to work on your business, not in your business. You can continue to work on things that build morale and that make people enthusiastic for the business and make it better. And it's like, I found, I think in the first couple of years that I did my business, I felt more like, like a little bit more freedom to, to just follow my nose toward those, those projects that were uh, exciting and that, that kind of scratched the itch and that kept me enthusiastic. And I think I got to a point more recently where I've had to be a lot more serious about managing cash flow just because the expenses have grown so much. And I don't like that. And yeah. I've, I've kind of made, I've kind of changed course some in the last year to try and maintain my ability to make decisions other than purely for the sake of managing cash flow all the time. I think like one of the biggest yeah. pieces of advice that I give people is just like, keep your overhead reasonable enough that you can afford at any given time to do those things that you want to and not that you only like 
because if you get into a tight spot, then it's like, you're just going to have to behave very conservatively and like not make any investments that pay off eventually. Like you, totally. you can only live very short sightedly. It's really tough. Yeah. I think, I, I, I think like there's something, I mean, there's something very real about like running out of money, right? Like you can't run out of money. Um, at, at the same time, I, I think if you do have enough, I don't know, like, you know, your cash flow is in, in, a, in good enough shape that you are not about to run out of money. I, I think the, the, I think it's sort of incorrect to look at it and say like, okay, these are sort of like frivolous projects that are just for me. So for example, um, if you uh, sort of like reducing batch sizes by a um, factor of 10, um, can lead to up to about 500% reduction in lead time, right? So, mm-hmm. and then people who take this like lean approach to production, um, the numbers generally are like 50 to 60% reduction in human labor, and then like 40% reduction in required floor space. So like, those are real numbers that are actually very powerful. And, and I think the issue is that as a small business, when you are kind of always... I don't know, sort of behind, right? Like I have a million projects that really should be done, like fixes to the website, um, bookkeeping issues that we're having that should really be solved. Like there's so much stuff that should just get done. Um, I I think it it often is tempting to kind of kick those process improvements down the road. Uh, um, And I just think like the more I'm reading and the more I'm looking at other companies and like what their numbers are, um, and companies who choose to kind of put that time in, uh, it, it's very exciting that it actually does tend to uh, pan out in the long term. Now, that is obviously with the big caveat of like, if you run out of money, you're out of the game. So, yeah. So <laughs> excluding that. But yeah, I mean, and the other piece is like, I think I... Um, I think it's easy to see the, the, the places to improve things by spending money and it feels really achievable, assuming you have the cash in your account to just be like, Oh, I'm going to buy this piece of equipment. It's going to do X, Y, and Z for me. That's awesome. And then it'll like land here work. Like that's always the temptation about like around buying new versus used and so on. Um, but there's so much low hanging fruit in like bad process, design that like takes you know 10 15 bucks in materials to fix Mm -hmm. um like flow in the shop or like need i mean here's a here's a silly example that we went through so we used to um basically we we assemble everything to order um and so yeah i do that too yeah get an order on the website right and then that uh packing slip goes to our assembly area and the way we used to do it is someone would assemble the buckles with their, you know, given color combos, drop those in a bin, and then cut the webbing needed to sew to those, uh, fold up the webbing, put it in the bin, and then, like, slide it down the chute to our sewing machine. And then, uh, they, you know, they'd keep working through orders, and then someone would be at the sewing machine, or someone would later get on the sewing machine and kind of sew through those bins. And we sort of started looking at that, and we're like, wait a second, we we're cutting the webbing, we're then folding it up to slide it down a chute to have someone like unfold the webbing immediately. (laughs) Like that's definitely over processing. And so we redesigned that area. So now you cut the webbing and you don't 
you pick up the webbing one time, you turn 90 degrees to the sewing machine, you sew it, you wind it, and you put it down, finish, right? And so mm-hmm. that cut quite a bit of time out of that process. Like, we were up north of five and a half minutes per strap, um, and now we're down, you know, a little under three minutes per strap on average. And that's a huge gain that happens every single day. And so that's the part, like, so we spent probably three hours sort of like redesigning that cell. Most of it was just redesigning, like rethinking how we were going to do it. And then Mm -hmm. once we sort of settled on it, there wasn't actually much building involved. We just like scooted the sewing machine around um, and whatever. So we probably spent like three, maybe five hours on that. But now we're gaining, you know, two minutes back per strap and actually more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, like those three minutes would go by pretty quick. Yeah, you know, that, that are like the, the ROI is really quite quick. Yeah. Um, and the other piece is, so we reduced our human labor on that. And then we also, uh, freed up about, um, so we have this sort of side table that we'd assembled the buckle on and then we'd sort of turn, it was a U shaped cell. So we had this side table, assemble the buckle, turn 90 degrees, cut the webbing, and then uh, pack that into these orders that were all like arranged on the bench there. And now we process one order at a time. So we shrunk the cell by, you know, around 40%. Um, well, and you're and in a small space throughput. too. <laughs> Super small space. Yeah. So I think that's like all that. To, to like zoom out a little bit too for frame builders yeah. who, I mean, I, you and I are in the CNC machining world more than a lot of frame builders. And so, yeah. You know, we're exposed more to lean manufacturing ideas and frame building, as I understand it, is a little bit less from like the actual manufacturing sphere. There's like absolutely right. manufacturing ideas and manufacturing nerds in frame building, but it's not there is less of that. And because um, a lot of I think a lot of frame builders are artists at heart, and I don't think that's necessarily good or bad at all. But like it's just a lot of people. It's it's more expressive for them to make a bike than it is like, uh, you know, like how do we get our uh, efficiencies up so that we can create more value for the customer? It's a little bit more thinking about it like artistically and expressively or the pursuit of the, um, what is it? The performance of the bicycle or something, those sorts of things Mm -hmm. anyway. uh, But, you know, if you do study lean manufacturing, some of it sounds really unintuitive at first. And you're like, what? Yeah. You're telling me batches are less efficient? They're clearly more efficient. And so the, a lot right. of people na- naturally and understandably uh, take sort of uh, <laughs> offense almost to the ideas. And so anyway, uh, I think it would be interesting in this episode here to to talk about how some of these ideas might relate to frame building more than people realize. Like, for instance... Uh, if you're a frame builder and you like building in batches, uh, I'm not trying to tell you that you, you don't know what you're doing or that I have it figured out better than you. But I do think that it is really worth thinking about and thinking critically about how much that's really improving your life and your business and your ability to deliver, you know, like a quality product to your customers at a better value, more flexibly. Like, is it though? Cause like there are parts of it that you can see, that are an improvement, but there's a lot of other parts too, that you might not be measuring or looking at or thinking about. And so, you know, there's cost and benefit, but like, yeah, it's, it's not all good to, to do batches. And one of those big things is a lot of frame builders work in a small space 
and working in batches yeah. just takes up space. You get a bigger box takes in. Takes up a huge amount of space. You, a bigger box of material comes in from your supplier, Paragon or Nova or whoever's shipping you tubes and dropouts and stuff. That takes up space. The box is bigger. Your shelving and storage area needs to be bigger. Uh, the amount of time that it takes to unpackage all of that box before you can start to build, that's bigger. The amount of cash that's missing from your bank account is bigger. The amount of sales work that yep. you have to do to get that batch moving is bigger. Everything is bigger. Okay. So we've established that now you're like going to start building them and uh, tubes don't take up that much space. But once you start to get main triangles and front triangles and rear triangles, all this stuff in, in place, it starts to take up a lot of room or you think about builders who uh, have multiple fixtures and that makes total sense. Sometimes I get that, but like if you have multiple fixtures to build, you know, more titanium or carbon fiber bikes in a day, that eats a lot of space too. And uh, anyway, so like the bigger that your batch is, right, I'm just trying to highlight that like it's not all sunshine and rainbows to build batches. And the worst I yeah. think is the amount of cumulative time and money that you can have tied up in stuff before it can ever make you a dollar. You know, if you have 40, 40 bikes in process for, sure. for the span of a month, or two months or something, and then you say, wow, we turned around 40 bikes in a month, you know, that can be great uh, toward your bottom line, but it can be really, you can be riding the highs and the lows, you know, like the um, the ups and downs of that, where you have a huge amount of capital tied up for a long time and a lot of risk too, if, if your customers were to back out or something was to go wrong or you had a quality control issue, it's just really risky. And yep. so there's a lot of ups and downs and I think, you know, one of the overall themes of lean is just like, what would it take, like, think critically about like, what would it take to re-engineer a process so that maybe you could take one bike from start to finish, get paid for it, then start the next one, then start the next one. And people will protest and they'll say, but wait a minute, I'm going to lose all my efficiency for this. And then you say, okay, so like, let's, let's investigate what those losses are and what you would need to do to rectify those. And a lot of times there are solutions. Yeah, I mean, all that for sure. I mean, like, basically, I, I think, I mean, it's interesting to look at the history. So, like, Henry Ford is sort of credited with mass uh, inventing mass manufacturing and the production line. And looking at, and I think us in the U.S. Um, have kind of that idea of mass manufacturing proliferated and never really got updated. And actually, so historically, so basically, Ford was doing their thing um pre-war uh it was all going very well you know we were making in a hugely growing economy um they did great and it was way more efficient than anyone else had ever produced anything basically um and then what happened um so post world world war ii uh there was a Basically, uh, the Japanese had to rebuild their country and um, Toyota started manufacturing stuff and, and kind of uh, happened on some ideas that sort of led to the Toyota production system. And, and, and you know, there's people who wrote uh, better histories than this, but it's sort of interesting just to understand where it came from. Um, and in the, in the oil crisis around the 80s, um, a lot of car manufacturers had huge financial issues and, it, and Toyota was doing way better than everyone else and kind of everyone kind of turned and looked at them and went like, what are they doing? Because they were, I forget if they were actually still profitable through that, the oil crisis or if they just didn't go bankrupt, which kind of set them apart. Um, but I mean, I guess not a lot of them went bankrupt, but they, they really suffered financially. And, and so that's sort of where it came from. 
And basically what you're doing when you do a big batch, as you said, like I think, and I, I was guilty of this for sure. Um, when you're producing in, in big batches, it feels really fast because like you get this machine set up to make this cut or to do some operation. And then you just like blast through 50 of them. And like, it's super fast, but basically what you're doing is you're actually taking all the waste built into that process and you're just amortizing it over more parts. And that was the approach Ford took in a lot of the stuff they were doing is like, okay, it takes us eight hours to set up the dies on this press. Well, let's just produce 10,000 of them and then we'll just put them in storage. And then we have tons while we need them. And that works for them because they're in a growing economy. And so the issue and, and is because there was there was no competitive alternative that was better. So like, you know, right, right. at that, that time, was like it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was very innovative. I mean, and they did come up with stuff that was still, you know, still used. But yeah. Um, but what, what it hides is like, why is it taking eight hours to set up your press? So Toyota yeah. was taking four hours in like the 50s, early 60s or maybe yeah, like 50s. Um, they were taking about four hours to do a die change. And they um, they brought in this guy, Shigeo Shingo, who's written a bunch of books. Um, I've read most of them. And a super interesting, kind of like, takes a, a hard look at all these aspects of production. But anyway, they brought him in because they heard that Volkswagen was doing the same die change in two hours instead of four hours. So they brought him in to like, why are, you know, why are they able to do it in half the time? And they worked on it for like six months and they got it down to 90 minutes from four hours. Yeah. And then the head of Toyota said, okay, I want to do it in three minutes. And they worked on it for, uh, I forget, like three more months. And they got the changeover down to three minutes from four hours. And so that just tells you that like, there's a lot of, basically in batch work, you're just building, you're taking all that waste and you're amortizing it over more parts instead of just addressing the waste. But the fact is the waste is still there. And so every time you pick up a piece of material and then set it back down, just to pick it up again later, that's also waste. And so you end up building in all these wastes that are sort of invisible. And so I think like something that I didn't really understand for a while in implementing lean, because every time there's a failure in like just in time or lean manufacturing, it, 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 it's very tempting to build up stocks in the different areas to address that because it's embarrassing to run out of materials to ship to your customers or yeah. whatever it is. So you end up like, I think, like just I don't know historically like humans it's like wow I have this huge pile of food in my cave <laughs> like I'm good to go right mm-hmm. like I think there's something too like having a bunch of stuff even if you can't sell it like it's half built frames bike frames um, you're like okay we have a bunch like I can see the the you know the fruits of my labor like <laughs> you know we're making a ton of stuff um, and that's the inclination but really like part of lean is not only that it will make you more efficient by really substantial margins. I mean, a lot of companies who implement it after like two or three years, they triple their profits, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe the revenue is steady, but their profits are tripled. So that's awesome. I heard a great expression. Um, uh, revenue is vanity and profits are sanity. <laughs> um, so, you <laughs> know, don't, don't chase revenue. But um, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, basically, yes, you're, you're hiding all these wastes. And like part of the goal of lean is not only to become more efficient, but it's also to actually surface the waste. So if you try running your process with one piece instead of like batching it like you normally do, say you do a batch of 10 or a batch of 100, yeah. um, if you run it with one piece, 
all of the wastes that are in your process become really annoying. And that's part of the point, right? Like they kind of become vanishingly small if you do a hundred. Yeah. But if you just do one, like the fact that you need to like stand in front of some machine to let it warm up or you need to uh, like it takes you quite a while to get your frame fixture that you made, you know, aligned to the exact because you like, you know, tap, 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 tighten something down, measure mm-hmm. that angle and go like, OK, uh, that's close. Loosen a little tap, tap, get it back like all that stuff, that's the waste that you're building into your process. And then you just like blast through 50 and feel good about it. But if you just do one and actually make a note of every time it's sort of annoying to do, or it's slow to do, or like every fault with that process, and then take a little bit of time to improve each one of those every day, like that's where the benefit is. Um, You know, there are also benefits, as you mentioned, to the fact that you like have less work in process that is all like labor and materials that you've paid for that you can't actually sell. Yeah, Um, it's really you can be very like sluggish and not dynamic when you do batches because you just have like the 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 time frame and the cost to make revisions to anything and and just like mentally thinking about like what it would take you're just very averse to like changing course or like if there's a change in the marketplace or something you if you let's say that your ability to like develop a new product and get it manufacturing and like out in the market really fast if you could do that that would be transformative but if you know that it's going to take six months to get anything done it really just kills your motivation and like, I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. really nice. I found for me, cause I do such a high mix and a low volume of everything. Certain kinds of optimizations are just really ruthlessly expensive because like if right. I optimize, you know, one part of one process associated with one part and I have like 200 different parts and I don't even have the product line that I intend to have in the next couple of years, I want to keep developing a lot of stuff. So I might have right. 400 or 500 parts soon, you know? And so like, I can't optimize that many of the different processes, but like, that's not to give up or to say that I can't optimize a lot of things. Like for instance, a lot of what I really need to optimize isn't the machining processes. Certainly there's, there's, uh, there's some low hanging fruit there, but like the big things for me, I think have a lot more to do with, uh, inventory assembly, packaging and shipping general shop layout stuff like that's the lower hanging fruit for me uh honestly most of the time i just love machining so like it's fun to think about (laughs) yeah it's fun to think about i get this new tool and i can rip through aluminum a little bit faster and decrease my cycle time but like i just spent whatever four hours reprogramming things and i spent 200 bucks on this new tool when there's been you know uh improvements you could make by like switching where I'm moving, where some machine is to closer to where it's needed or something like that to have the same savings and take less time and cost, you no money. Right. Yeah. Just today I was reprogramming these little wing nuts that I make. I developed a wing nut when I started selling fork fixtures back in March and and I was like, you know what? I'm going to make them really decorative and really nice to the touch. And I really liked them. And then I developed a, a stay mitering tool, the stay slayer. And I put like 
four of those bastards on the stay slayer. So now I'm burning <laughs> through them way faster and I need to make oh, them more often. And so I was like, you know what? I have a program and I have everything documented and set up and I can make four at once and it's fine. And then I was right. I spent like over an hour today. I'm not even done yet. I'm not even close to done trying to develop a new process for how I could make more, a bigger batch actually, but just how I could more, I guess, efficiently produce them because when I have so many to make all of the trips, me walking back and forth to the mill to like advance four parts at a time is a pain in the butt. So I was developing yeah. a system to make 16 at once. And that is a four times boost, but I mean, it's a lot of time me sitting at the computer and I don't even have the mill running while I'm doing this, you know? So it's like, right. <laughs> anyway, um, it sounds like it's time for a spindle gripper. It does. No. <laughs> I know. I was actually, so for listeners of this podcast, we talked about that a bunch when I had uh, Devin on from Lycan Precision recently. And, yeah. but that's through spindle air or through spindle coolant, or it could be either. Uh, you can use either one and you don't actually need a machine that's enabled with through spindle. Um, you do, if you want to be able to spin your gripper while it's being used, yeah. which is something I use quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, you can also just put like, you know, like a 90 degree head or something often has sort of like an arm with a pin yep. that engages some part of the spindle nose. Yeah. Um, so you can do the same thing and have that be your pass through for air. But yeah, I'm using through spindle air. Um, you can also use through spindle coolant. My understanding with coolant is that uh, it tends to take a little bit longer to come up to pressure I for see. the pump. Um, and I don't have the pump on the machine, so I just, you know, piped in some air. Uh, if I do add the pump, you can also use a dual system where you use air some of the time and use coolant for cutting. Um, so yeah, wow. but basically, I mean, I, I, I didn't finish the episode where you had Devin on Devin's like 10 minutes down the street. Yeah, um, so exactly. We, we yeah. talk a lot about spindle gripper stuff, but I um, got, I got to figure out the spindle gripper thing. Cause my machine, when I bought it, I did not get the through spindle coolant pump, but I paid you know, an extra thousand dollars to have it prepped with the rotary union and oh, the hoses. You're all set. Yeah. Well, I don't know though. I, I need to talk to Haas or somebody who knows Haas better than me because I think, um, well, I don't know the details. So before I go just hooking it up myself, because yeah. I think somebody was telling me that like, if you just hooked up coolant to the rotary union, you could break things and that there's, uh, uh, apparently like, what is it like the, the rotary union is supposed to either already be spinning or not already spinning or something when you begin pushing coolant through it. And I don't know how that relates to air. The point is hmm. I just not wanting to damage that stuff. I need to just at least, <laughs> at least, at least yeah, do the cursory yeah, yeah, Googling sure. if nothing else. But yeah, I, I, I should be yeah. able to hook it up. I know the way Haas wants to sell it to you. It's like $6,000 for the through spindle coolant pump and then another thousand dollars to add through spindle air blast. And if it's a thousand dollars for merely an air solenoid, that would be kind of ridiculous, but I wouldn't put it past them. They have a, they have an option for anyone. Sorry, we're getting into machine dorking. Now my generation <laughs> of Haas with the next generation control. So mine's a 2019 VF four SS. Okay. They want to sell you for a thousand dollars, a second home position or 900 bucks or something. And so that's on, on the control pendant, there's a button and when the doors are shut and you press this button, what it'll do is it'll retract the spindle and it'll move the table to an XY coordinate position of your choosing. Right. And what's really cool about that is, you know, it just brings the table right in front of the doors. And I didn't yeah. want to pay like 900 bucks for that. So of course I didn't. And then I heard from a friend and don't tell Haas, but you can, you can totally cheat that. Like 
Hosmer. Yeah, I saw that same uh, story. Um, what's his name? I'm forgetting his handle on Insta. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think we saw the same thing. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I learned from my friend and then I've been telling people some. But but anyway, yeah, you can just like, you can just hotwire it and it'll work. Most of the stuff, yep. most of those features, they lock out in the control. Like you need the access code from Haas to turn oh, it on. But this one, you, you all you need to do is just get the right like little connector and put a button on there so anyway i did that and it's amazing yeah <laughs> but i oh that's awesome yeah i have a stupid program that i have to call that does the same thing but i like call you know program 25 to bring the table right to the door retract the spindle brings the force to zero and then jets it's, over to the door it's pretty swanky on like, mine i have know, i have like five buttons to press instead of one I have annoying. one button that I press that's the auto doors and it'll shut the doors. And then I have the other button to press oh, and it brings the table to the doors. And then I press the first button Living again and open the doors. And it's still like <laughs> the door opening and closing is kind of more trouble than it's worth in that instance. Cause I can just open it faster, but like it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, that's a great example of like a little improvement to improve your quality of life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, it's such a it's such a great payoff. Like even if it's not a financial payoff, just like not dealing with more annoying things throughout your day yeah. is just so useful. Like I forget what it is. It's like ninety percent of businesses don't make it past year five. I forget the statistic. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's a lot. It's bad, right? And like a lot of that, I think, is just like feeling worn out. And then you mm -hmm. look at like what you could be making in the market. Like if you just got a, went and got like a normal job at some company and you're mm -hmm. like man what am i doing i'm like busting my ass for like a fraction of the, of the of the pay yeah um and so well, like i do think it's important it is yeah i, I think it's wild frustration level it's wild because um being in business for yourself is really like the wild west you know like if you really have if you have the insight to see what the market wants and needs you could theoretically just make bonkers money um, by figuring yeah. out a more innovative or more appropriate way to provide value to people. They'll just, you know, totally. like people are happy to pay as much as they have to, to have something that's better than their next best option, you know? And yep. so like, if you just have really good ideas about how to do that and you're good at marketing and you get it in front of the right eyeballs, like you don't have a boss that's like trying to, keep your pay reasonable like you just make as much money as you make and so it's kind of exciting in that way at times but then the other reality is true that it's like if you don't have that stuff figured out you could be working for like a dollar an hour you know <laughs> like yeah. so like there's no guarantees it's really when it's good it's good and when it's bad it's bad and when you work for someone else it's kind of average it's kind of guaranteed to be average you know like you might get paid better or worse but for it's sure. still it's within like this socially accepted band. You have minimum wage on one end and you know, you're not going to make more than a lawyer or something on the other end, probably in the machine shop environment, programming or designing products or whatever. So like you're kind of hemmed in on either end, but like in the, in the entrepreneurial space, it's, it's the wild west, which can be exciting or demoralizing. But I, yeah, <laughs> you think about sure like, if you were an employee and you were going to work for somebody, would you be willing to work for less money and less total compensation 
if you really believed in the mission or if you really enjoyed the workplace or if you really liked your coworkers, or if you had good perks, like maybe you got to work four days a week instead of five or you had good vacation right. benefits. Of course, you would like a lot of people would take less total pay in order to have a job that they liked better, you know, and that's qualified yeah. differently for different people. So if you apply that to yourself as the business owner and you say, like, maybe I should just make things nice around here so that I don't quit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I mean, so I'm kind of I, I like not to say it's easy because I think I think the issue sometimes is that the big items that you can you can very quickly make a list that's like a hundred thousand dollars, right? Yeah. <laughs> of just like I'm gonna like like right now I'm insulating the shop and that's not a hundred thousand dollars, but you know it's a real chunk of change. Um, yeah. And it's just uh, you can kind of make that list like okay I'll do better lighting and I'll do, like finish the floors and I'll whatever like that that can, you can start spending money really quick even just like. I'm going to buy like nice tables to work at. And then you're looking at like, Oh, 500 bucks a table. Jeez. Yeah. Um, anyway, like it can add up super fast, but I think like the thing to, um, start doing, which takes quite a bit of like sort of a shift in your mentality and just like your awareness is becoming more aware of like all the little things that bother you because a lot of those things you can solve with, like $15 or $0 or, yeah. you know, just like, Absolutely. wow, I like don't like today. Okay. So today I went fishing around behind my tumbler. Like I have the tumbler up on a little table and every now and then the, the drain hose from the vibratory tumbler um, gets clogged with like, I don't know, you know, aluminum bits or uh, yeah. small, um, you know, the, the media. And so I have a, like a little uh, T handle Allen key that I keep right there to just like pop it open and I'd fallen behind the table. So I'm like fishing around behind there and I finally picked it up and it's not the first time that's happened. So I like stopped, I went and I cut like a little piece of plastic, drilled a hole in it. It took me whatever, six minutes, screwed it to the side of the table. And now like that thing has a home and I won't have to go fishing around on the ground, uh, hopefully ever again. Um, yeah. and, and that, that cost no money. It was a scrap from the trash, you yeah. know? So, and it didn't I really take like, that long. Yeah, there was. I I think like there's a lot of those things that cost no money, exactly, but aren't actually that like extravagant or Mm -hmm. fancy or the stuff you see people posting about on Instagram of like, look, I just bought like it's new tool day, and Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, nice, good work. Uh, But yeah, you just think about you know like low hanging fruit, right? And so uh, my good friend and sort of business mentor, Sean, talks a lot about doing a two by two matrix. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times you would put on the one axis of your matrix, you would do like how easy or hard it was. And on the other one, it'd be like whether it's a high payoff or a low payoff. And so you look for things that are a low effort, a high payoff. And there's a lot of those if you look for them. And when you're paying attention, you know, like you'll be marketed the ones that are a high cost and a high payoff. Those are, those are the ones that people afford the ad spend to try and sell you a CNC machine or a robot, or they can sell you a software package or they can sell you something else. But there's actually quite a few that are low cost, high effectiveness. And, and something you were saying a minute ago just reminded me of, uh, I've been talking, I've gotten to know Alec White from White Industries better this year, and he will be a guest on the show at some point. I really admire him and I really like him. And he's a sort of a lean manufacturing evangelist. And so it's been fun to talk to him. But he was, we were talking about shop processes and stuff. And he said something 
Like for instance, I have a lot of pressed pins in the different mm -hmm. assemblies that I do. And so you might use an Arbor press or if it right. requires more muscle because the fit is a little bit too tight, whoops, you might need to use like a Kurt Weiss or something because those have a uh -huh. lot more clamping pressure. Um, but anyway, so you might be tempted sometimes to like, you know, grab a little bin of parts and a little bin of dowel pins and walk over to the press and then start pressing them in and, you know, don't just do one, do a whole bunch of them. And it feels right. But, but again, why, why does it feel like you should do a whole batch of them at once? And that's maybe not so evil. We exactly. maybe don't need to waste too much time analyzing it. But like, if you do, why is it that you want to do a batch? It's because the setup, you know, of like walking over there. Right. And so anyway, like sometimes you're tempted to just get it done and whatever. And he's like, He's like, don't get it done. Do one of them and then spend the rest of the time that you would have spent pushing those pins. Just put the pins next to the Arbor press, <laughs> you know, like, like right, just organize, right. organize your, like if you can, or at least consider that, you know, like at least spend a minute to consider whether or not that's an option rather than blindly doing it the way that you've always done it. Because a lot of times, you know, like it's the, the only nature of the setup that's really a big deal is like walking between things or like grabbing right. the tooling like for instance when you're pressing pins and whatever you might need to use like a socket from your toolkit to use as a press tool okay well maybe you should you know keep that next to the thing or maybe you should buy a redundant version of it or whatever but like a lot of times yeah. if you just think critically about like wait why am i feeling inclined to do a batch right now and there might not be an easy solution and you might be better off continuing to batch but but you should at least challenge yourself to like think about whether or not there's a viable alternative i think that that's my advice to people like it's not to say that like everything should be done in a quantity of one at all times forever and you're a fool for, you know like because that's a lot of people get the feeling that like the lean evangelists are up in their ivory tower telling everybody else how to do it <laughs> right and it's like that's not the point it's just like you should at least consider these things you know like be willing to consider them because i think a lot of the reason that people batch stuff is like they just don't really think about it that it just intuitively it feels efficient and that's good enough yeah, but it's also what everyone has talked about exactly. for, about mass manufacturing. Like that's yeah. everything I saw growing up and like through college and everything was like this idea of like mass manufacturing is like parts flying off of a machine and you just make a ton of every single thing. And then like, like, uh, I mean, even like just like the, the expression, like if, um, you know, efficiencies of scale, right? Yeah, like that built into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Economies of scale. Um, like all that stuff. Anyway, so I think. Yeah, it is sort of counterintuitive. Um, I think like something that we've started doing recently, um, which has really helped just as you're sort of saying, like at least like contemplate the possibility or think about. So t two things we've started doing. One is I think there's often a feeling that what you're doing is this like very complicated process and sort of this like craft process, right? And uh, like every day is a little bit different and you're solving all these problems. But a lot of that feeling comes from the fact that like the underlying processes that you are sort of interacting with in doing this, this uh, main process are not standardized and are not um, like optimized in any way or organized. And so like, for example, like you were talking, I need this wrench uh, to operate this machine or to remove some like dies on it or something. So I walk over to this place. Oh, like it's not in this toolbox. Oh, someone must have used it on this other machine walk over there and so you like your feeling of throughout your day is that there's like high degree of variability and so it's really hard to approach like where to optimize and so something we've started doing uh in the shop is basically 
we try to make every single day exactly the same because it turns out that most of what we do is like pretty standardized, right? Like there's some custom stuff. There's some, and like even in a, in a straight up custom uh, frame building shop, right? Like the operations, the underlying operations are actually very consistent for the most part, like say 85% of what you should do to build a bike, you know, and maybe I'm talking a little bit out of turn here, but I have built two bikes, but you know, I'm not super experienced, but like, you're going to have uh, tubing that needs uh, to be notched, right? You need to maybe file that. You need to maybe you're doing some bends and then you're putting that into a frame fixture and maybe like you have to set your frame fixture. But like the fact that there's so much disorganization in the shop or the fact that every day looks a little bit different, right? So like maybe day one, you're doing a lot of tube bending. Maybe a different day, you're doing a lot of notching. Maybe a different day, you're doing sales. Maybe a different day, you're doing like emails. Because it feels like every day is different, it's hard to say, it's hard to take a good hard look at that and go like, wow, every time I do this process, it's annoying, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you do the same thing every single time, every day, it starts to surface a lot of those sort of little frustrations and little inefficiencies. Because instead of it being like, oh, like last week when I did it, it was as annoying. Instead, it's like, I'm doing less of it, but every single day I'm doing this activity, it's annoying. So like, let me move this wrench over by this tool or let me order a second one to keep at this tool. So I always know where it is and I always have it. Um, and that's been like actually very helpful. So instead, so uh, we used to do more batch stuff. Um, so now we produce 30, 30 finished buckles or straps every day. And that's like our current pace and, and that's nice. going up every month, but like every single day we do 30 and it's just interesting to see when that is like a steady process, um, all the little things that disrupt that. And we started measuring tax time of like on average, how long does it take us to complete that? And if you think about like all the operations involved in any given, um, uh, you know, product to get it all the way out the door and you, look at like the time it takes to do that efficiently. And this is uh, a guy, Josh at the holstery, um, sort of walk me through like how to think about tax time. Um, but you sort of have this like, okay, all the operations go smoothly. I'm not working at a frantic pace, but like that's maybe your minimum time is all those operations cumulatively. That's your minimum time to get that thing out the door. Then you think about like, Oh, I dropped that box of screws on the ground and had to like pick them up or like, uh, this tool wasn't where it was meant to be or all the other, like all the variability and like how long it takes you to complete all those operations with variability. And you draw like another bar next to that original bar. The difference between those is you like your variability. Hmm. And oftentimes you have a massive variability, but you don't really see that. And, and a big, um, it's really helpful to be able to kind of reduce that variability. So like, why did those box, why did that box of screws fall on the ground? Oh, because this table is cluttered or because like, maybe we actually need a dish of screws that is attached here because we always need screws at this assembly station, right? Like you can start to decrease the variability. Like we have a roll of webbing that like every couple days, the whole roll would kind of fall off the stand and fall on the floor. And then we're winding it up. So we're adding time, winding it up. We're adding time, like dusting it off. because like sometimes it would get a little dirty. Um, and, and like now that we're doing 30 a day, like that became super glaring that that was an issue. And so we like rebuilt the rack and it took us 
I think it took us about 10 minutes because we literally just took the piece of plywood that they were all attached to and just like angled it back so that the spools kind of tended to, you know, stay on there. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, so that was one is like leveled production is just like assume basically doing everything the, the same uh, every like day in, day out. And that's been, that's been, um, yeah, su- super transformative just in, in kind of illuminating where there's inefficiencies in the process. Um, anyway, that was one and I'm forgetting the other at the moment, but yeah, I, I was, uh, thinking some realizing some over the last year, like, why is it, it can, like, it's not an uncommon experience for people to just feel like they just don't want to adopt any sort of lean thinking or, or lean culture. Like people are just certain kinds of people are really turned on by it. Like I think intellectually, like it sounds fascinating and it sounds kind of exciting. The challenge of it, I think like lights up a part of your brain if you're wired a certain way. And then I think there's a lot of people where they're just like, they don't want to think about the process. They want to think about the finished product or they don't want to think at all or whatever. I don't know. And I do think (laughs) one of the things about batch work that is appealing is that like you can get into a rhythm and that maybe you can just kind of like muscle memory. Like there's, I mean, something we said for muscle memory, right? There's something to be said for like, I'm just going to put on my podcast and I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to do a hundred of the same thing. And like, I'm going to see the pile of unfinished work move from the left to the right, right where it's a pile of finished work. And like my progress will be clear and apparent and like maybe the first three or five won't be done very well, but I'm going to get into routine. And I, I think another thing that like, you know, just trying to point out, like there's a lot of great things about batch work. Of course, one thing that's good about it is that like you can really fast track your development. Like for instance, if you were a bike frame builder and uh, we'll say, we'll say welding, there's a fair amount of welding in a bike frame, but like if you're a bike frame builder, yeah. And you did a little bit of everything. So you, you mitered a tube and you bent a tube and you drilled the holes and then you loaded it in the fixture and then you welded it and you did the next thing and the next thing. And you intersperse a little bit of welding with a lot of other things. You get a little bit of welding practice every day, but like, man, wouldn't it be kind of nice to just sit down and like weld for like six hours, like every day for right. a week or something. And then you would really, you would get good at one thing quickly. And then once you felt comfortable with that, you could move on to the next one. So like, I do think that there's a lot of reasons that are very real and justified why it can like, it can feel really good and people want to continue to work that way. And I think yeah, part of what I love about it is just that like, it's, it's like definitely worth reckoning with no matter what, you know, it's just like, like challenge yourself to think about how it could apply more. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I'm remembering the other thing that was kind of helpful. And I think you kind of alluded to it is like the other, I, I think a lot of the decisions we make are very reasonable given the, um, given the situation. Right. And so like, you want to do batch work because every time you have to walk across the shop and get those pins and bring them over to the press. Well, maybe you can solve that by putting them at the press. And like, so one thing I, that I started doing is thinking about like, what would happen? So we, we do these buckles in a lot of different colors and um, each, each buckle has three machined components and we have two sizes. So we have six pieces to machine and obviously relative to what you're doing, that's nothing. <laughs> um, you're like, fuck you. you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I was like, so we were, we're running, um, you know, we do batch work on our CNC because, um, 
because like we set up the vice, we set up the, the spindle gripper with particular fingers. We set up a tray that holds a particular stock size, right? But what would happen to our process just as a, you know, a, a mental experiment? Like what, what happens to our process if I could click a button on the CNC and it would spit out one part of, of whatever I wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And suddenly you start to see how that transforms everything downstream and, and it starts to indicate, to me, kind of like what my North Star is for like what the ideal process is. And I think that's really useful. And I think it's easy to sort of lose track of like, I'm here and I'm making very reasonable decisions based on all my circumstances, right? Um, and, and I don't think like, I don't know, I, I don't think it's worth kind of like beating yourself up about that. I do think like there's some people in lean who are like, you're doing it all wrong everything you've thought is wrong and you're like, okay, (laughs) thanks. Like, that's cool. But, um, I think like it's, it's very helpful to kind of remember what your North star is in terms of like where you're headed Mm -hmm. because it can get, you can get just lost in like, here are, here's my reality. Here are the shop. Here are the tools I have. Here's the, you know, whatever, like all that stuff. And I need to ship product. So what do you want me to do? Right. And it's worth at least just as a mental exercise to go like, what would transform if like all of this setup time went away? And there's actually a really uh, there's an awesome book by Shigeo Shingo called The Revolution in Manufacturing, the SMED system. Super catchy name. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> SMED is single minute exchange of dyes. Like you were alluding the guy who to like with the, the bringing the time frame from eight hours down to like a minute on changing the stamping dice? Yeah, yeah, right. And so he wrote a book on it, and it's an awesome book, and it's pretty short. And like some of his chapters are like three pages long because it's like, here's the information. And you're like, oh, thanks. And like some of the, uh, some of the level of um, detail, like there's a chapter on fasteners. So if you think about like putting a screw in, the value of a screw is like it's clamping pressure typically in like machining operations, right. Or like mechanical things. Um, so all of your, all of the process of like screwing in a screw is waste except for the last quarter turn where it comes up to torque. (laughs) And so, (laughs) right. Like all that turning is all waste. And so he has a few ways of eliminating all that waste. And those are all parts of, um, reducing your setup times. And And it's interesting uh, it breaks it into five steps to get to a single minute exchange of dyes. And the first step, just applying it with zero money and uh, zero time, except just uh, thinking it through. Uh, the first step is just um, distinguishing like explicitly between um, like in process, like stuff that has to happen with like on a CNC stuff that has to happen with the CNC doors open and stuff that can happen before the CNC is stopped. Right. So internal time versus external time. Um, and just by going through that, we went from like a 14 minute changeover to a seven minute changeover. Wow. And it was literally just going through the process. So for example, like we changed the, the vice, the jaws on the vice. And when I said we, it's me at the moment, cause I run the CNC, but, um, uh, those need to be changed. So what we used to do is like the machine would stop. We'd cha- open the doors, unscrew the old vice jaws, take them off, um, blow off the vice, blow off the new vice jaws and put them on. Well, we don't have to blow off the new vice jaws while the machine is stopped, right? We can blow those off before the machine is stopped. Yep. So we started doing that. And like just in distinguishing between the two, 
went from a 14, you know, 14 minutes down to seven minutes. And, and now we're at about like three to five minutes, depending on the part. Um, and that's just like through a little bit more refinement. So another example is like, I talked about screws. He, one of the things he says in the book, um, is like, look at your forces and decide if the number of fasteners is appropriate. So we had four, four screws holding the vice jaw down to the vice. Well, it turns out we're doing only OD clamping. And so the back set of screws was literally doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And so we eliminated those screws and like, you know, instead of having to tighten four screws or eight screws, we're now tightening two, uh, four screws. So yeah. like all, all this like tiny little stuff that like doesn't cost any money. And uh, I don't know, like and gets you closer and closer to that ideal where you're producing only what you need when you need it. So you don't have all this stuff sitting on the shelf. And like you talked about QC and I think that that is one of the most overlooked things in, in like the feeling of satisfaction of like banging through a whole bunch of stuff in a batch process like that can save time. But every now and then you like mess some piece of that up and you have 50 that you've either scrapped or need rework. And I think somehow like mentally you sort of put it into this like exceptions category of like, Oh, well I messed up. Not like, Oh, this is inherent in batch work. Yeah. And and I think that's like, I don't know, important to recognize. Um, and like uh, it, batch work is, is quite difficult in terms of getting to like zero uh, rejects, which is another interesting um, you, goal. You imagine a system like, let's say that you have a product that you sell for $500. And let's say that it costs you... Um, you know, a hundred dollars in raw material cost and it costs you, I don't know, I'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air. <laughs> sure. what a, let's say a hundred dollars in raw material costs, that's 400 left. And then let's say that it takes you four hours to make. So it's a hundred dollars an hour shop rate for your time. And right. uh, it's a product. And so let's say that um, you projected that um, you were going to do a big batch and it was going to take you, uh, like three weeks to to run through all the different parts to create the batch and to get them through plating and all the different process. I don't know. I think about anodizing and laser etching and all that sort of stuff, but for it sure. can vary for if you're making bikes or if you're making whatever it was you're making, but there's all these steps and processes. And finally, at the end, you have this stuff in inventory and it's all speculative because you don't really know how many you're going to sell unless they've pre-sold uh, like a Kickstarter right. or something. But like, let's just say it's all speculative. So, so anyway, you're making a wild guess and you're investing a hundred dollars in cost. And that's not even your shop overhead or your labor. That's just like your hard cost per piece or per unit to try and make these. And that's just like a really big investment. And you, you need to, so like, let's say you're going to do a batch of like 30 or something. So that's $3,000 in hard cost. And you need to sell six of these things to even begin to break even to cover your hard costs, not not even considering your overhead for like shop and insurance and labor right. and stuff. And so, okay, like if you feel reasonably confident that you're going to sell all these, then you'd say, yeah, maybe that, you know, $100 an hour shop rate, that's not bad. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to do all right on this product. I should make a batch of these. And I need to make, of course, like, duh, of course I need to make a batch because that's the only way that I could ever be efficient. But then imagine alternatively, what if there was just magically, there was some way where you had zero of them in inventory and you made a web store and you made some marketing videos and you sold one and that order came in at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday 
And then right. you spent the four hours and now it's 5 p.m. and the part's made and you put it in a box and you like drop it off at the at the post office box on your way home. And you did not invest that $100 until the moment the order showed up. And then you didn't invest the time until it showed up. And like, imagine that with a whole product line and a whole business so that like you never had to spend any of your hard earned money until something was already sold, but you were still able to deliver to your customer immediately and reliably. Yeah. And uh, like, it's not a trivial thing. Like, I think we tend to think no, it's huge. We tend to yeah. think like, oh yeah, well, like I'm going to make that money back though. And it's like, well, you might, but like, how much money do you have to start with? Like who starts a business with just like tons of money? Most of us don't. And, and if you did right. have tons of money, you might want to invest that in equipment or something. <laughs> and so like to just go investing a ton of money into building a batch of something is hard because like that one product is still not even enough to carry you. You have to do that with a bunch of products. And so. Yeah. And the other, the other thing that I think is really interesting, sorry, yeah, well, I was just going to relate that to something that I've been thinking a lot for my business lately yeah. is like, I do these assemblies and like from a design perspective, they take a long time. And I mean, I love making these assemblies, the tools that I do, and I love being able to support customers, but like it's a lot of design time and refinement and development can take months. And I got to write all these right. different programs and I got to speculatively make a batch of some size because CNCs do have setup times and because anodizers and because of everything else. I try to keep reasonably small batches, but I make batches. Yeah. And at the end of it, I'm just speculative, you know, that, that anybody was going to buy these. I hope that they do. And they always do, but like, who knows how quick or if I need to scrap stuff because, you know, there's a change or something. And, right. and, but then I look at frame components and I look at like the titanium, <laughs> the titanium head tube. Let's say you had a CNC lathe and you could make titanium head tubes that frame builders really wanted. And if you look at titanium head tubes, you know, those, those will be made in like a five or a 10 millimeter length increment. There's a lot of different sizes. Now imagine trying to right. hold, hold inventory on all these different sizes of head tubes is kind of a nightmare. It's like, wow, there's like 30 different sizes. But if you figure if your setups are pretty quick and if you just hold enough inventory, like of the tubing itself that you started with the raw material, then at any moment when an order came in and you didn't have it in inventory, you could get it on the machine within, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it takes. And you could have that finished part yep. because there is no anodizing and because there is no big assembly and because there is no hardware, you could be prepared right. to actually. And so like, that's kind of the whole idea I think with lean is like, you don't make things except for those things that have sold. Like you spend your time on those things that like you let the market tell you what they want and that's what you spend your time. Yeah. On. Yeah, so there's a, like the name for that sort of is uh, like push push versus pull production. So like if you think about like setting up a massive press and then running 10,000 of that thing, you are then saying to the market, this is what we made, now you better buy it, right? You're pushing it down yeah. the process to the market, whereas the pull process starts at the market and you have a customer that says, I want this thing, and then that pulls from your production line and then your production line makes that thing. Mm -hmm. And now the challenge I think for a lot of us and like, you know, my parts are compared to yours or most people's aren't super complex, but there's still lead time and like every part of the process takes some time. And so you end up holding inventory so that you can satisfy the customer with a quick ship time. Um, but a lot of that is, again, like because you haven't sort of really taken a hard look at your process. So it turns out that 
like reducing batch size and batch delays. So, okay. So if you're doing batches of a hundred, when you, so you have a pile of raw material, when you pick up that first one to process it, um, the other 99 are waiting, right? And then you pick up the second one. Now the other 98 are still waiting to be processed. Mm-hmm. And now when you set up, set down the first one after the process, it is now waiting while the other 99 get produced. And so if you cut your batch size by a factor of 10, and there's a couple other, like two other things you, you can do, uh, you tend to cut your lead times by about 500%. So that would be like two weeks down to like, you know, some number of hours. And so suddenly something totally unrealistic to produce to order becomes very realistic. So like for me, we manufacture these buckles um, and we are doing batch work and, and like we keep trying to reduce the batch sizes, um, which is, you know, uh, easier said than done sometimes. But uh, we do hold inventory at certain parts. So like we hold inventory after machining. So we machine a bunch of them. We're really careful with QC and we try to keep those uh, those how much inventory we hold to a minimum. So we won't way overproduce. We produce just enough so that no matter what the order, ideally the next part of the process, which is paint doesn't have to wait for machining to keep making parts. Um, but uh, like just, just having kind of having this idea of like, okay, what would happen? Like, okay. So I was looking at the process. We have big batch delays in um, from machining to tumbling. Right. So like if I make say 50, um, buckle bodies, they're sitting in the machine waiting. The first one and the rest of the other one are waiting, and they're all sitting there in the machine just waiting. They're finished, but they're just waiting for the whole batch to be done so that I can move it to tumbling. And then in tumbling, it goes for two hours at this point because we have like a really cheap tumbler, um, which doesn't have a lot of like kinetic energy. So if, if one at a time they came out of the machine and I was somehow able to dump them into a tumbler, that ideally, and I have, maybe this exists, and if this does, like, let me know. Um, uh, I want a tumbler where you can drop one part in at a time, and, and it sort of, like, works its way through, like, almost like an auger or something out the other end. Or yeah. maybe if that doesn't exist, instead of having one big tumbler, I could get five little tumblers, and now I have, like, every five parts come out immediately going to the tumbler. Suddenly, the upstream process is going to speed apart an hour sooner than they would if it had to wait for the rest of that batch to be done on the CNC. And then similarly, in our sandblasting process, we do batches of 32. Well, after you sandblast 32, I'm sorry, we do batches of 32 per part, so that's 64. So the parts um, get sandblasted and then go into an oven to get uh, degassed before they get painted. That happens also in a batch process. So now we're waiting an extra 30 minutes to sandblast all the parts before they go into that oven where then they sit for an hour. But what would happen is if as the parts were sandblasted, they were immediately put in the oven and suddenly you shave another you know, 30 minutes from that first part and, and the person who needs to rack that uh, to put it on a rack for painting can now suddenly do it like if you look at all those improvements can now do it an hour sooner yeah right and then like so on and so forth like at the paint process i'm spraying paint and rehanging those parts and then once it's all done it goes into an oven for curing yeah well it takes an hour to do paint and then it takes two hours to cure the paint if those parts went into like a tunnel oven that like slowly pulls them through and it takes two hours to come out the other end Mm -hmm. i would have parts out the other end for assembly 
a full, you know, two, three hours before if I eliminated the batching at every step there. And our front to back process is only theoretically about four and a half hours long. That's only theoretically, unfortunately, yeah. right? Like that's if everything, like the second one process was done, it moved on to the next process, which often like I minched the shipping area or I'm sewing or whatever, you know, it's, or if it's over lunch or something. So, but you can start to think like after a little bit of improvement, maybe more than a little bit, but if I was able to get that down to like one hour, mm-hmm. suddenly when an order gets placed, I could actually machine the parts for that order. Yeah. And that would be huge, you know, well, instead and- of tying up my, mach- my machine by like what you're saying, like making speculative stuff that maybe people buy, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. I can instead focus on like product development or other things that would actually really grow the business yeah. or like my time instead of spending time making stuff that's purely speculative, that time from a business perspective would be way better invested on like sales efforts or something where exactly. it's balanced with production such that the demand exactly matches what I'm making, which is only theoretically possible, but could definitely, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, and also, I mean, I don't know exactly who our audience is on this uh, or where they find <laughs> themselves with their, with their interest in or capacity to even want to think about this. I, I don't know. Cause it's a frame building podcast and that's a disconnect for me, yeah. but, but I would just say uh, just to draw out, because I have learned over the years that this stuff, at first it sounds a little bit like maybe academic and theoretical, but like it's very real. And I think part of what makes it very real to business, if you haven't figured this out yet for yourself, is think of it as like a financier, you know? So like, let's say you wanted to uh, create your little business because, you know, your ability to have your business is kind of like your freedom to spend your time the way you want. You know, we all need to produce something uh, in order to like survive. Okay. So we need to do that. And if you need to make an investment, which is true of pretty much any business, if you need to make an investment on the upfront, that's even harder. And now you've sunk some investment and there's a period of time while that investment is sunk. And then you hope, and this is the speculative risk part of it. You hope that your investment is going to come back to you later. And so you can think of that a little bit like the bank, So, you know, you might go to a bank or some other sort of investor, some sort of lending institution, and they might say, you know, uh, money is worth, uh, you know, more now than it is later. So you're going to have to pay us back all of the money and interest. And we also, you know, there's risk involved here. We're not sure that we're going to get paid back. So we want even more interest. And so you should think about that with your own money. And you should think, Uh, Like for me, for instance, I have many thousands of dollars tied up in inventory in my shop right now. I have caster wheels for the rolling stand and I have all the raw materials for all the different parts and all the anodizing that I've paid for. I have uh, some powder coat work that I've paid for. I have, uh, you know, just fasteners and gas fittings. And I have a ton of stuff in inventory so that when somebody orders something, essentially it's all in stock. I ordered today just, you know, extrusion for two frame fixtures. It was over a thousand dollars. That stuff's gotten a lot more expensive recently. Like it sucks, man. And like, anyway, um, if let's just say that I had, instead of like, what if I cut my inventory down to, you know, like a 10th 
of what it is because because yeah. I somehow developed a process. And so let's say that right now in my business checking account, I had an addition. I don't know exactly how much inventory. I don't know how much money I've spent on it in terms of labor and business overhead right. and raw material and anodizing and hardware. But let's just say it's fifty thousand dollars. It very well could be. But if if right. I had that, if I had forty five thousand um, dollars, like what, plunked like, in your account. Is that what I said? Yeah. 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 If I had $45,000 plunked in my account right now, how would that change the way that I spend the next week or the next month? What would I be able to do that would develop, you know, value for my customers? Would that make me sleep easier? Would that allow me to right. invest in a piece of packaging equipment that makes me even more efficient? Would that allow me the peace of mind to say, I don't need to worry about anything this week. I'm going to develop the next product that makes my customers happy and that gives them a reason to spend money with me. Like that's not a trivial thing to have the the batches that tie up all of your money because again, it's like that cash flow question. It's like you know, you get to play with cash flow a little bit, and then there's a very real limit on that. Like when you when you get a little too lean, like you die. Zero. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. You're 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 yeah. like I have a mortgage now for the shop building, and I have machine payments, and I have taxes, and like these people don't screw well, around. They... Like when you stop paying them, like <laughs> like pretty soon, like they don't you, like it. You get in trouble, and then like you lose your freedom to like spend your time in your shop doing your thing and you have to go get a job for someone yeah. again. And I so value my freedom now, you know, like the, my ability to do my uh -huh. own thing. It's a really big deal. And think about how hard that would be for my customers, like not to be so self-important, but like I've developed products that my customers right. like invested a lot of money. Like <laughs> I hope people don't need yeah. replacement parts because things break, but certainly like, you know, extra bending dies for the tube bender and like extra totally. adapters for the frame fixture. And just like, People or they grow their business and want standardized tooling and yeah. want another frame fixture. Or, exactly. Yeah, no. So like totally. anyway, like any and, and I have here's a story is that uh, over a year ago when we started selling the frame fixture, it was just a perfect storm. We sold a shitload of those things in the in like it was people had uh, tax return money. They had stimulus money. There had been a uh, like a, a drought of of frame fixtures on the market because Anvil had retired and we sold right. a crazy number of frame fixtures for a while there, but it's like, it's slowed down as you would imagine. And as we would continually kept running out of various parts of them, I got annoyed and I started doing larger batch sizes, always being interested in small batches. But I just said like, you know, with the anodizing lead time and everything, this is ridiculous. I'll just, totally. but now there are parts that I haven't run in like a year and a half. And like, Interesting. that's really expensive. And, and some of those didn't get anodized, like they're fine, but like, I wish that they were anodized better. And now I have like a lot of those and some of those, right. I haven't felt like they were, that they really needed revisions, but like, it just fundamentally makes me averse to wanting to revise and update my product any sooner than I need to, because I'm like yeah. a year and a half before I even use it up. So like there, anyway, I'm just trying to illustrate to anyone well, who hasn't really yeah. seen the waste it's like it's there if you look for it like it's truly yeah. a real issue the other really just fundamental part is like if you have cash tied up in inventory or you have cash tied up in work and process that isn't even inventory that you can sell like wouldn't you rather just have that cash in your bank account and have the flexibility to either put it into more inventory or put it into sale yeah or pay your taxes or like yeah. all these things like like it's way more flexible if it's maintained as a cash buffer like you don't need to lean out where you have no cash in the bank because yeah. you've leveraged every dollar like that would be a mistake too 
but having it tied up in like work in process, especially is, it's not uh, flexible. Nobody's going to take that as payment. The only person yeah. who, the only person who wants your product more than their own cash is your customer. And so if you have like an abundance of customers just bursting at the seams, that's great. But still like, they don't even want it unless like for me, for assemblies, like I can't sell somebody 95% of something. I have to, I have to have every single piece finished and ready and in a box, right. you know? And so yep. like, that's a different issue, but like basically like nothing is more flexible than cash. And if you have cash, then you have the choice to just make more of the thing. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I feel like we're beating a dead horse to some degree, but like I, there's definitely. just a lot of people who it's like, it's, it's just like you, you don't need to see it and you wouldn't see it until you started really like, looking for it and so, yeah and then once you jump into that rabbit hole once you like see it you can't unsee it. And, it's, <laughs> and it's really fun is the other piece like one of the parts i look forward to most in my day is that hour of improvement and just to bring it back to like maybe the target you know whoever's listening um if like less into the business side and less into like mass production or something and more into the art of it i think like it's also worth noting like one of the early improvements i did was um i filed my quarterly taxes which i don't know about you but like that's not the fun part of this to me mm-hmm. um filed my quarterly taxes which like you're doing every three months it was sort of the first time i had done it in the state i'm in now and so like it was a foreign process i didn't know exactly what i was doing and i took the time to record a video of myself doing my taxes yeah. and I have a QR code now that when it's time to do quarterly taxes, I scan it, I pull up a five minute video and like every time I do my taxes, I pull up that video. Yeah. And, like at this point I know like I sort of skipped through, but it's like some of the things I have to fill in on the government website are like a little bit ambiguous. I'm always like, wait, does that include out of state shipping or is this number meant to be like revenue with like without out of state shipping? And like the video just kind of clarifies it all. So like, I think it, it can also just be like giving yourself the time to improve things such that you're not spending time on the things you don't personally enjoy about your business. Like, yeah, I don't think it has to be about like minimized batch size and single piece flow and all this other stuff. Like it can just be like, I'm really into the artistry of my craft. Yeah. I don't want to have to walk across the shop to pick up my file because mm-hmm. I don't have a file here and a file there or a yeah. Sharpie or well, any of those things. And yeah. A lot anyway. of it is just like, it like, you know, you could say you're eliminating waste because waste increases the cost of your product for your customer. But you could also say, you know, you're eliminating frustration because you are your customer that the shop exists to make you happy. And that as your own sort of, we'll say customer, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're happier when the shop is set up a certain sort of way. Uh, but you can choose that for yourself. You have some, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the, the more that I have freedom to experience metalwork in my shop as a hobbyist and not as a business person, the more I will be clean and organized because (laughs) I, I feel less pressured to just get things done and I am not that clean or orderly by my nature, but I love doing it. Like it makes me feel good about the shop work to like, you know, organize a new little thing or lay the space out better or just make it look nicer. And I think it, like, it's just fun to improve the space just for the sake of that, apart from trying to get work through. Totally. So you, uh, 
you said you made two bike frames. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the first one, um, I came across like mini velos um, a bunch of years ago. Uh, they seem to be quite popular in Japan. And um, anyway, I'd been wanting to make a bike for quite some time. Um, like, I don't know. I, I always got excited when I heard someone be like, oh, I built a bike. And I'd be like, oh, no way. And then it turns out like they assembled a bike, right? They bought mm-hmm. all the bike parts and they assembled it, which, you know, not throwing shade on like that. That's that's also cool. I've done that too. And it's fun. But I, um, anyway, I always wanted to build a bike. I was super excited about it and was sort of trying to learn more and just thought, it would be um, like a mini velo. I could take an existing bike frame and just kind of cut it up and weld it back together. And it would just be a quick way to, you know, actually do it and just see what it was like. And um, anyway, so yeah, I bought it like an XL old steel bike and just kind of use the tubes, use the head tube, use the bottom bracket, use the dropouts. Um, I like trimmed the fork down and just like butt welded it back together. Um <laughs> And and the thing is, like, if you think about, like, what those tubes were designed for in terms of forces um, on, like, a 700C wheel, and then you shorten it all down, like, it's pretty overbuilt. Like, I've bombed through, like, single track on the thing and never really had any uh, anything break. Um, but I did that without a, without a bike fixture. I think, like, sometimes, and I do this still, like, sometimes projects kind of end up with, like scope creep where you're just trying to like sort of make everything perfect and so you don't do any of it and so i just like threw all that out the window and was like i'm just gonna like do it with no frame fixture you're just gonna weld this thing up and just like see if it works and uh, it did and i actually wrote it like it was sort of my commuter when i was like if i was going to the airport or like somewhere where i was like leaving in like sketchy spot because it was like a single speed kind of looked like shit because i didn't paint it <laughs> so it was all rusty um anyway yes i wrote it a long time um the lack of frame fixer was definitely apparent it was always like turning to the left a little bit um but you know it worked and and it was fun and and it wasn't too too difficult um so that was that was one and then a while later um so you know doing everything on your bike um you start to or anyway i started like wanting to carry more and more stuff with me right so like uh, senior year of college, I welded up a big bike frame and sort of the, the, the design, um, intent was to be able to carry plywood from home Depot because my brother was leaving Pittsburgh. Um, and so I wouldn't have a car. So I was like, all right, gotta be able to like haul lumber. So that was, so I built this bike trailer, um, to do that. And like, the bike trailer is great except that you never want to bring it with you unless you know you'll need it so like often i'd be biking home and you're past the supermarket and can't buy groceries um so i wanted like a bike that was sort of no longer than a normal bike um and we went with like the long haul trucker i think tip to tip is like 72 inches um so we designed a buddy of mine and i designed this this cargo bike that was 72 inches tip to tip uh 20 inch wheels um and so like you can sort of push the cockpit forward because of like toe overlap with the front wheel so you gain a few inches there and then um ended up it's basically it was like a year before the the turn gsd came out which is essentially the same bike and it's funny like obviously they've been through more design iterations so they everything's a little more refined but like the bike also would stand up on its 
on its back. Like if you popped a wheelie kind of, it would like stand up that way. Um, so the idea was like to be able to have a really capable hauling like cargo bike that would, that was useful in a small living situation. So you have stores really compact by standing up on end. Um, like it, it can fit on a normal like bus, uh, bike rack. Um, so that was sort of the, that was, that was the goal. Um, kind of got a little, um, anyway, we, we designed it also, uh, just to haul a stupid amount of weight. And so it's like way overbuilt. Um, funny story. We were messing around for quite a while with the geometry to get the whole thing to be short and like looking at the virtual top tube length and all this other stuff and sort of like tweaking everything and going like, okay, what if we flip the whole front wheel around when you wanted to store it? And so like that gains us a little bit. Okay. No, not that, you know, a lot of iterations and somehow like we went to final, um, like we sort of solidified our final design with the head tube angle being a driven dimension. <laughs> like we never really revisited it. Um, and so I welded it all together and it was, uh, a little bit North of, uh, 79 degrees. Wow. <laughs> um, so I'm riding it around. And I'm like, this is so twitchy. Um, like, is this okay? Will it work? I don't know. So I wrote it like that for like a week and then ended up doing kind of surgery where I reset the whole thing back to like, we got it back to like 70, maybe 70 degrees somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. so now, so, uh, interestingly, um, I, I haven't rebuilt the fork, so it's still running the same fork and it was optimized. I, I think it was designed around like, I'm not remembering this exactly as a bunch of years ago, but, uh, it was like maybe 55 millimeters of trail. Um, and then when we readjusted the head tube angle, now it's like 135 millimeters of trail. And so <laughs> it, uh, has some weird performance characteristics. So I just need to re rebuild the front, uh, you know, the, the, the fork to have a little bit more forward offset. And by a little bit more, I mean a lot more. Um, and interestingly, um, my conclusion, and this might be wrong, you know, I'm not a frame builder, but my thought is like, so my understanding is there's three factors to like, um, stability on a bike. There's trail, there's gyroscopic precession, and there's like the pendulum effect where the front of the bike is a shorter pendulum has a, has a lower center of mass than the rear section of the bike. So as it falls, the front of it accelerates a little faster. And so it turns in. So anyway, so you have three factors to play with. The thing is like, as you increase trail, it feels like you increase the amount of corrective force, um, in, in the front end, as you tip the bike side to side a little bit. And in, like on a cargo bike, if you have people on the back and they kind of lean one way or another, or they like adjust themselves, the more trail it feels to me. And again, this could be wrong, but it feels like the more trail you have, the more sensitive the bike is to whether it's vertical or not, or like whether it's tipped relative to the terrain it's on. Hmm. And so I think if I were doing it again, I'd go for a pretty low trail geometry for a cargo bike. That's like not a great sample size. Um, yeah. to have that conclusion. Anyway, it was just kind of interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I had always, you know, studied those numbers and looked at those numbers when I would design frames, but I never was that objective or scientific or I didn't draw that many big conclusions about it. And I didn't really, I didn't try that many different things. Like I think one time, 
I had a bike where I built a second fork for it with a different rake just to compare how the two different ones rode. Oh, interesting. They weren't so far apart that I don't think I would have been able to tell in a blind test. I think they were five or ten millimeters I would say, you know, they say you learn the most from failing. So I'm not sure I would have gotten that into it if I hadn't, like, spent uh, a month building a thing (laughs) that was, like, really wacky. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, did so, you uh, did you listen to the? Uh, I did a podcast with Sam Whittingham from Naked Bikes, and he talked about some of the uh, human powered vehicle stuff where they really got wacky and weird with it. I don't know if you would have heard that one. No, I'll go listen to it. Really good. I need to get him on the podcast again. There's a lot of people I've had on this podcast who I would love to talk to again for all sorts of reasons, but I know I can think of five or so people where it's like we specifically did not have enough time to talk about some of the stuff I wanted to even the first time around. And, and the one yeah. with Sam for anyone listening is I, I think a really good one, his insights on uh, frame design and a lot of things were just really, really interesting. And, and I think oh, kind cool. of unique, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he, I think he held a record for, I forget, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but yeah, he, <laughs> he had done some impressive like human powered vehicle uh, distance or speed records or something. Very cool. And uh, but like they would get weird with it, where they would have like the handlebars behind the steering axis or like negative rake or I don't even remember, but like some weird stuff. And crazy. And and similar but different. Was that for I mean, like rear steering? No, it was like vehicles? front front steering. I don't no, remember. Okay. I don't remember the details, but because I never even saw pictures. Yeah. Um. And similarly, but different, I mean, I've heard from people about, you know, some bikes that are just wicked out of alignment that still ride straight, you know, that like the human body is, can, can be for some things very good at correcting for, for some totally. of the stuff that seems weird, but it's like, well, I mean, we're really smart creatures though. So, <laughs> right. So I have a, a Pugsley, one of the ones with a, I think it's 14 and a half millimeters of uh, rear offset, like side to side yep. on the rear axle uh the rear hub is pushed off to the drive side um and i wanted to run skinnier tires on it but i was like "Ah, i don't really want to lace up one of these wheels like with a weird dish to just ride on that then i was like i ride all over town all the time with one pannier and sometimes i have a lot of weight in it like how bad can it be and so i just threw a symmetrical wheel in there and it's off center, like visually off center, mm-hmm. rode totally fine. You know, yeah. like if you think about it, you're riding single tracks. So there's all sorts of weird forces happening all the time anyway. Yep. Maybe if you rode like that for a month, you'd have some like weird back pain from like constantly it. leaning over one way. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe you just shift your ass over slightly and it's like, call it a day. A- anyway. Yeah. I think like sometimes you can get carried away with the precision, but absolutely at the end of the day, the the precision can be fun and can be, it's sometimes really important, but also like, you know, don't fool yourself that it's always necessary. And I think one of the best rebuttals for that is just that our bodies are not symmetrical that like, you know, if you were to <laughs> right. measure someone's skeleton, it's, it's, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a, like what ophthalmologist or whatever. I don't know that much, but, uh, ophthalmologist i don't know if that's the right word either. i think that's Any- eyes or something <laughs> <laughs> anyway. i'm not a doctor okay <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah anyway yeah no i think you're right uh osteopath right osteopathic I don't, you got me Oste- it doesn't matter anyway i think our skeletons are not 
perfectly symmetrical. And I think our flexibility in our joints is not the same. And I think the way that we learn right. to use our bodies. And so anyway, and, and Rob English, who I had on this podcast said similar things that like there was a frame builder who specifically built a bike where the wheels didn't track in the same line and it was fine. And there were like no right. negative consequences. So, you know, it's, it's good to like challenge your assumptions about what needs to be what, because uh, some of it matters. Like you said, your mini velo, it seems to ride funny. So like, okay, well that's a real perception, but on the other hand, uh, some things don't seem to matter so much. So. Well, I would say both bikes I've built ride funny because of <laughs> mistakes I've made, but you know, one day maybe I'll make a one that just you get on it. And it's a normal experience. Yeah, um, I that did said, like, I, I sort of feel like if you're not doing something unique, like why spend the time? Like you can buy such a nice bike off the shelf. That's like all normal, like geometry parameters. I don't know. So I always, I always end up trying something kind of goofy. I feel like with I, most of the projects I do. Yeah. I think uh, if, and when I start building more bikes again, I'll, I'll, I'll probably get a little weirder with it. Um, just for the fun of it and to learn and, and to meet. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I can just buy a lot of these bikes off the shelf, but it's building yeah. the ideal cargo bike for specifically me and my dog, you know, or like whatever else. It yeah, is. exactly. Uh, those kinds of things. Or, I mean, that's what I get excited about a lot of fabrication projects. It's like, if I can just buy exactly what I want and if it's not like an exorbitant price tag, just because it's only sold to industry or something, but like it's, right manufactured to a semi-reasonable price point like i'd be happy to just buy it but like i i get excited about making those things that are unique to me and making something new and different or putting my own spin on it or even if it's just aesthetic or whatever but like just making it my own is is exciting yep and then you know obviously your odds of failure are higher but it goes with the territory yeah yeah and it's good i mean that's it makes you intrepid it makes you uh like a, <laughs> you're an explorer you're you know something yeah. my friend said to me he said uh he said um my my dad told me that i always learn things the hard way and <laughs> i i feel the same way <laughs> people are like <laughs> I, I feel like i often like look at the market i'm like oh man why are, why is everyone doing it this way it would make so much more sense to do it this other way and then after like a year of just like deep dive into that i'm like okay yep here are the reasons <laughs> like Here's why it's done the way it is. And that's 90% of the time. I think that's like an important lesson in, in business. Um, like I, uh, I did a startup uh, right out of college, did the whole startup thing, raised like a million bucks in uh, Silicon Valley and uh, whatever, did a bunch of, um, yeah, like, you know, pitch competitions, uh, Forbes 30 under 30, the whole thing, except uh, building a successful company. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but, um, I think like a big, like we basically misjudged the market. Uh, we solved a big problem in water filtration, uh, that everyone said they needed solved. Like we were doing water filtration for disaster relief in developing countries and, uh, basically just didn't understand like the actual pressures at play. Um, and so what we built did solve the immediate problem of people get sick after natural disasters from drinking contaminated water. And there weren't really water filters that addressed that in a, in a user friendly way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we solved that problem. The problem we did not solve is that our customer had very adverse incentives around like what they spent their money on. And so it just, you know, we sold some, but it didn't anyway. So 
I think like a big lesson for me over the years is just like really get in, like you have to understand if you can't explain why it's done the way it is, even if you turn out to be wrong, like when it's just like, uh, this is so ridiculous that this thing exists in the state it exists. I think it indicates a lack of underst- of your own understanding. If you can't articulate why it is the way it is. That's um, a, that's a, I feel like there's a, actually a lot of wisdom in what you're saying there that resonates with me a lot. I feel like I've, I've noticed that more and more that like a lot of things that I haven't understood in my life that sometimes, you know, it's like, as you get older, you start to understand them better. And, uh, yeah. you can just, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like, like you can okay. be kind of arrogant to think that, you know, like, you know, better than all these other people. And I feel like, totally. um, for things to be a certain sort of way, I don't know how to make this generalized, but like, you know, in order for, in order, in order for something to actually be kind of functioning and to you, it looks like dysfunctional and it looks obviously inefficient and wrong and backwards, but it's like in order for it to actually be working that way and continuing to work and like historically working that way, something about it must really be working, you know, like, cause, cause if people had some sort of better option, like they would be they taking do. it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it, it must be harder than you think. Or it must, you know, like people say they want one thing, but really they're actually self-destructive creatures. And like, you can't explain that part of it, but like, that's a, a big part of it. You didn't realize or whatever. Yeah, or, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as like the way the financing works behind the scenes. Yeah. It doesn't make sense for X, Y, and Z reasons. So yeah, I think like, you know, doing what I'm doing now with these CNC buckles um, early on, that's like sort of why, I kind of thought it wouldn't succeed was everything I had sort of experienced made me feel like there was like someone needed to do this. And I kept waiting for someone else to like make really nice hardware. Cause I was like, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. Like I want, I don't care if it's more expensive. I don't care. Like I just want to be able to like have access to that kind of hardware. And, and I think in all of that, I was still just super nervous because no one else was really doing it. Yeah, You know, and, and, and it's just a situation where you're like, okay, either I'm somehow like seeing something everyone else is, is ignoring or the more likely explanation is that I'm mm-hmm. missing something. Yeah. Right? Well, you and know, so, and I mean, it is, it so is a risky. small market too. So I think it's fitting that exactly. someone such yeah. as yourself does it because, you know, maybe uh, uh, some bigger company in that space could afford to, you know, hire an industrial designer and, and get them manufactured and they could distribute it and whatever, totally. uh, quite possible. But, um, on the other hand, you know, that, that total revenue stream maybe doesn't move the needle that much. For yeah. Them. So that Whereas, was like, actually my hypothesis going into it, which is sort of gets back to like, if you don't have a complete, if you don't have an, at least an explanation for why things might look the way they do now, like maybe keep, keep researching, but my hypothesis going into this was basically uh, there are these huge hardware companies and they're, as you're saying, like they're not even going to touch something unless like the market for that piece is huge and they can afford to make an injection mold that has like whatever, 64 cavities or a hundred and whatever cavities. So they're just like cranking these things out and that's what their business does. And so it's just that like, there aren't people focused on hardware that have, a very low, like relatively speaking, a very low tooling cost mm-hmm. and that every product needs to be so efficient in production in terms of like change over times, in terms of 
volume that you can actually address these like more niche areas. And I think that's like one of the things that you see in general with CNC machines is like the stuff they produce is kind of expensive and it, like it's not that efficient because you're cutting away so much material. There's all this uh, non-recurring engineering that goes into like work holding and all this other stuff. Um, and it doesn't produce at a really high rate. Like in terms of like metal forming in general, like wire forming is the most efficient because you have essentially zero waste in material. Sheet forming is second because you have very little waste and then you bend it into three dimensions. Like all cars are made out of sheet goods basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then like, you know, three dimensional like milling is sort of the least efficient. But the big thing it has, and I think where you see all these niche, all these little companies or some of them are quite big, it, it, the advantage it has is that like you don't actually have that much money tied up in specific tooling. So yes, the yeah. thing sitting on the floor is like the cost of a house, but it makes every single, every single piece you sell. Right. Mm -hmm. And it does all of them. It doesn't do one of them. So I, I think like that was a big part of the, the kind of business thesis was going after these niches that are too small for these big players to play in because otherwise the second you demonstrate any traction, they're just going to be like, Oh, cool. That's awesome. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And I think like, I don't know, some of these companies might not even, it might be hard for, did I hear you say that YKK is one of the companies that makes this sort of thing? Yeah. YKK, Duraflex, there's a number of them. Yeah. So like, I remember my whole life, I would just, if I was ever bored and I was like observing my environment, I would notice the zippers said YKK, but like, you know, if YKK had a really high-end buckle brand, they, 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 it's almost like they would need to have like a, you know, like a marketing firm develop a brand identity for them because like, who's going to spend top dollar for, I don't know, like it, they, it's, I feel like there is something to be said for when an individual who's kind of passionate and interesting and charismatic, even, even if they're not like charismatic and like a, in a popular popular kid kind of way but like if they have a charisma because they they care about what they do and they know about it and they're smart and they know how to design a product and that sort of charisma or something uh that's like a real mm -hmm. commodity though that like some of these big companies they don't have they're just like bloated old conservative companies and like what they have done is they found a thing that works and so they know how to keep that alive and they know how to kind of keep milking the cow and they probably know how to do that a lot better than I do. I mean, I'm sure they do. So like that is a real talent, but like what they maybe don't have is like when you go to one of these small manufacturing companies, a lot of times they have a lot of personality and they have a lot of soul and you can have like a connection with somebody and that's not nothing. That means something. And so like when a big company that's been around forever, you know, like it wouldn't, I mean, maybe it would work just fine for them to sell what you're selling, but it wouldn't mean the same thing. I think that is like part of what you can offer people is that like, like, I don't know. It's just, it's cool. Like it's cool to, to buy things from your friends and from your peers and from people that <laughs> you like. And so like, I mean, it's gotta be good too, but like, it's, it's, I feel like that is part of, and for our handmade frame building people, you know, like that's a big part of what you're selling is like, you're selling yourself and you're selling, uh, you know, it's a lifestyle product, like a bike frame. And so like, you know, you, it's, it kind of expresses who you are and, and what you value or, um, yeah. Right. Like the, like, yeah, I think about the brand crust and they make these bikes that are just, you know, f fun sort of for crust punks maybe, or, or for other folks too, <laughs> but like, they're just kind of, they're, they're a certain kind of lifestyle. They say something about you. It's like having a band t-shirt. Right. And so, 
did you get a crust this year? I did. I yeah. I uh, was about to go on a bike trip um, through Vermont and then through Canada, like into Canada and, and back into Maine. And I was out on a training ride for it, and I was like, "Man, I gotta true my wheel. Like it's rubbing on the chainstays." So I flipped my bike over to true it up, like out on the trail. And both of my chainstays were like had massive cracks in them. <laughs> I was like, "Ah." This is like five days before going on the trip, and it was the bike I was going to take. Uh, so I like scrambled to find something. But it's always one of those things. It's like, do you spend money on? Like I don't know. The odds of finding something in a rush. That that's what I exactly what I wanted. So I just lucked out and found a crust evasion in my size. Uh, someone was selling it used, and it was built up in a way that like was close enough to what I wanted. Um, so I just like snatched it up and. Yeah, I've been pretty pleased with it. Um, uh, the the complaint people have, I guess about I guess about the evasion, or not the complaint, but like a downside is it's built pretty stout and so it's a little heavy. Um, I see. But I tend to kind of like crush my gear, and so I'm pretty excited about it being <laughs> kind of overbuilt. <laughs> you know, Tom so. Lipton always says nothing too strong ever broke. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know. Anyway, it is a little heavy, but it's it's a lot of fun. Um, my partner has an ECR, so like twenty nine plus, and I had just a Pugsley and then like a uh, like a gravel bike that maxed out at like one point nines or something. And so I was always like, every trip we took, I was like always a little bit on the fence, like, ah, do I go four inch or do I go like a little too skinny? So now I have like a twenty seven five, and I think it's two point eight on there right now so nice um right down the middle and uh yeah no it's good fun that's awesome um cool do you have anything new in the works that you want to tell folks about some cool new buckles or anything you want to tease or you could talk about Um, your new color combo or something i don't know yeah doing a bunch of color combos uh check them out um austere manufacturing.com or austere underscore manufacturing is the uh instagram uh we post a lot of stuff on there um a bunch of new products but at the moment um kind of focused on bringing uh growing the team a bit more and uh and then hopefully we'll be able to release a new a bunch of new products so nothing uh coming out um immediately that said we do post uh some stuff about process improvements a lot of them are very inexpensive um just actually did one uh, for racking the buckles. I, I posted a story about like, Oh, exciting things in the works and got a whole bunch of messages like, Oh, cool. Like, cool. I'm excited to see it. <laughs> kind of realized it's like, it's exciting to me, <laughs> like to the team, <laughs> but I don't know how many people are going to be super excited. It's like this little plastic thing that holds the buckle parts and has sort of like conical guides to guide the, uh, racking wires through it. Mm-hmm. So rather than like a really man, anyway, it, it cuts it cut our racking process from like five and a half minutes down to like, um, no, about yeah, five and a half down to, I forget what it was today, but like three minutes, 20 seconds. But the bigger thing is it, uh, reduces, it is now a mechanizable, um, operation. So it's like just a little stepping stone. And then the next piece is to build, um, a more automatic, 
uh, machine that racks parts and, you know, go That's from awesome. there. So you know, anyway, that reminds me of something I was going to say earlier and I forgot to, which is that what can be really cool about some of these improvements is not just that it's like, Oh, it was a 20% reduction or something, but it can be really transformative because let's say you have a chore that comes up regularly as part of your day-to-day processes of what you do. And let's say you kind of hate it and then you make an improvement. And now instead of it being such a dreadful chore, it's like, Oh, it's not so bad. We've got it faster and it's a little bit easier and whatever. And think about how that would like, uh, you know, like an order comes in or this thing comes up or whatever. And maybe you might, you might kind of avoid it and just kind of let it sit and like, procrastinate or do do some other stuff or uh for instance well this is a little bit different but like imagine a customer emails and they have a question if you can just like if it's not quite so much of a burden and you just like knock it out and you get it done within two minutes and then you get back to what you're doing like that can make a really big difference to the process or in the case of an email like it could make a difference to the customer and so sometimes like making a structural change that decreases it like, yeah, you get the time savings, but sometimes it fundamentally switches the way that you think about it. Like the, the amount of mental burden, it seems like it would take in order to finish something. And when you can recategorize things from being like a big freaking task down to something that's like pretty bite-sized, it can really, I feel like it can have a compounding effect because now not only is it faster, but like you're more willing to just get it over with. Yes. Yeah. That's how, uh, that's how I feel about doing my quarterly taxes. Um, Yeah, I mean, that was huge. Uh, and we should probably wrap this up. But yep. um, on the mill, um, we used to run the parts on little tombstones. And it was an 18-minute cycle for one tombstone, which held uh, eight parts, eight and op one, eight and op two. So eight finished parts per cycle. And then it was 10 minutes to reload them. Yeah. It was a highly manual process. And, like, I was, like, literally getting tendonitis. And so I bought, like, a, you know, like a pneumatic torque wrench and whatever, like, optimize it a bit. But you're still, like, then you have, like, eight minutes between things. And uh, now with the gripper on the mill, um, to run 40 parts, when the mill stops, it's about a three-minute reload time, um, and then it just runs for two hours on its own, so you have, like, tons of time. And it was one of those things, like, I used to dread production day of, like, machining, and because I was just sitting there with eight minutes to kill between cycles, and it's like, you can't really get into anything. And then, like, uh, and that was a major improvement that was quite expensive and time-consuming, but... Um, you know, there's tons of little examples of that too, uh, yeah. including the racking. And actually on the racking process, now with those jigs, we switched from taking off old, like the parts that had just been painted, we'd unload them and then we'd hang the rack up on this rack rack, uh, <laughs> we'd hang it up and then we'd pull out the parts to be painted and then we'd rack them. And those were individual tasks. And now that it's like just a little bit faster, we just switched to like, after you unrack so a rack holds eight parts. After you take those eight parts off, immediately, instead of setting down that rack uh, to then just pick it up again, we immediately rack parts onto it. And because of that little jig, it's like just less disruptive because it's not actually that hard to rack parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so like sort of to your point, and, and it sort of eliminated wasted motion of putting that thing down and then picking it up again. So the whole thing is just a little faster. Anyway. Yeah. Fun cool. stuff. It is fun. All right. Well, uh, yeah, let's wrap it up here. Uh, you know, I didn't really know what direction this was going to go, but I hope frame builders and listeners of the podcast found it interesting. And I'm sure if they didn't, they just tuned out. So no harm, no foul. But <laughs> uh, 
uh, I enjoyed it. And I'm, I know some of our listeners love this stuff. So uh, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. And uh, uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. And to the listeners, go buy some of the cam buckle straps because they're freaking so cool and badass and they're so fun to play with and they're so strong and they're useful for way more than bike packing. But they're obviously they'd be <laughs> good for that, too. I'm a big fan of them. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right. Talk soon. All right. Catch you later. Bye.